Hey, I'm Jay Sebring. I'm a friend of the Polanskis. You're Rick Dalton, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Rick Dalton. <laughs> Live next door. Oh, I know. I tease Sharon that she lives next door to Jake Cahill. If she ever wants to put a bounty on Roman's head, she just has to go next door, right? <laughs> no shit. <laughs> what the fuck happened? Oh, the, 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 these fucking hippie weirdos, they, 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 they broke into my house. What do you mean, like trying to rob you? We don't know what the fuck they wanted with, were they robbing me? I don't know, were they freaking out on some bummer trip? Who knows, but they tried to kill my wife and my buddy. Jesus Christ, are you serious? Yeah, I'm fucking serious. My, my buddy and his dog killed two of them, and then, uh, well, shit, I, I torched the last one. Torched? Yeah, I burnt her ass to a crisp. <laughs> How'd you do that? Well, believe it or not, I I got a flamethrower in my tool shed. Oh, from the 14th of McCluskey? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's the one. Yeah, it still works, too. Thank God. Is everybody okay? Well, the fucking hippies aren't. That, that's for goddamn sure. Yeah. But I'm fine. You know, um, my wife's fine. We're just uh, a little shook up is all. Oh, my God, that's terrifying. Yeah. Jay, honey, is everything all right? Everything's okay now, honey. Uh, but some hippies broke into the house next door. Oh, my God. Well, that's terrifying. Is everybody okay? I'm talking to your next door neighbor about it right now. Rick Dalton? Yeah, that's me. Oh, well, hello, neighbor. Is everybody okay? Yeah, yes, yes, Sharon, everybody's fine. Are you okay? Yes, I am, thank you for asking that. Rick, would you like to come up to the house for a drink and meet my other friends? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Oh, hooray! Great, I'll buzz you up. God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello everyone and welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 202, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So for those few listeners that follow along and listen to every episode, they were like, wow, Halloween, Jurassic Park, we know this one's going to be some obscure 
bullshit these two are going <laughs> to throw at us. But no, another monumental movie for us. Yeah, and similarly to when we did A Star is Born, a movie that's very recent and a movie that we've already talked about on other episodes <laughs> right. a lot. But we both love this movie a lot and wanted to do an episode on it. Yeah, I would say it's certainly my most watched movie over the last year. I watched it, I think, three times getting ready for this episode. But wow. Yeah, and it's a long movie, of course. But over COVID, I watched this movie several times. I think it was kind of bringing me back to... Happier days. Yeah, the last joy that I really felt, (laughs) you know, before going into this prolonged homestay. Yeah, I saw it four times in the theater, which was a throwback for me. I hadn't seen a movie that many times in the theater in a long time. Although I saw it with you twice in theater, I think, so. Well, we're members of the AMC Stubbs list. That's right, yeah. So everyone just relax, all right? (laughs) (laughs) It's basically free at that point. Really? So anyway, before we jump in, as always... Let's remind our listeners to follow the show on Twitter at GreatestPod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. And if you get a chance and you're enjoying the show, we'd really appreciate a positive review. <laughs> I know this is going to turn into a real sad segment it's no now. Longer, yeah, it's, it has morphed from rate and review to please leave a Begging. positive review. Only posi- <laughs> yeah. positive reviews only. Right. <laughs> please. <Yeah. laughs> anyway. This is going to be another potential lightning rod of an episode because for some reason yep. in recent years, not, well, I shouldn't say for some reason. I think you know the reasons. Right, right. Tarantino's kind of become like a hot button issue for yeah. a certain type of film well, commenter. We've kind of got multiple things going on here, which it, it, it does seem like the Weinsteins almost never talked about on this show, even though like we're involved in a lot of movies that you know we've done and talked about, but like I don't know if I would say that. I mean, in the one, in like Scream and Clerks and stuff, it was brought up in Pulp Fiction. No, that's what I'm saying though. I feel like ever since the Harvey Weinstein stuff happened, now all of a sudden they're like a topic on every episode of the show. Ever since that, that was news. Oh, you're saying we do talk about? It. I thought you said we don't. We don't. No, talk we about do. It. I'm saying before that, even though we did do movies that they were involved in. Oh well, that, yeah. Well, yeah. come on. That was the early days <laughs> yeah, of the show. That's it, was true. A, it was a much different show back then. We barely knew what we were doing. Yeah. Okay. That's Wait, fine. A little more in depth. Um, and I, but I also feel like yeah, talking about the Tarantino stuff being like hot button. It feels like this movie is more divisive than I would expect it to be. This feels like mostly a positive movie to me. I know. I I feel the same way. I think it's because people had their knives sharpened and ready before it even came out. And then they were disappointed in the sense that whatever they were ready to bitch about didn't really happen. And so they picked other things to pick apart. And then they jumped on convenient things like the Bruce Lee thing to basically vent their frustration, which most of the people venting about the Bruce Lee thing were pissed about something else before and just didn't get to say it because the movie wasn't what they thought it was going to be. Certainly some people not particularly thrilled with the portrayal of hippies in the movie either, although I will remind people... that stuff is like such a stretch. This particular group of hippies did go on to savagely murder people, so... Oh, well, yeah. I mean, we can kind of pick out some of our favorite asinine things that people (laughs) try to come up with, like... The Manson girls are supposed to be like represented as like the accusers of Harvey Weinstein, and they get like brutally murdered. <laughs> oh gosh! Yeah, and I you're just know. like, well, I don't really understand. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like from a mood perspective, obviously Tarantino has so many great movies. 
Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown right up there for me for like movies that I love and could watch anytime. But this challenges those movies for in terms of something that like I just like want to watch and it like puts me in a good mood and makes me feel like I'm watching something cool and fun. Yeah, it's definitely a fun hangout. We tend to fixate on like the very small percentage of the negative. That's true. You're right. When in reality, the movie was positively reviewed and a box office hit it made a lot of money and it was a big hit and i just think it's funny that tarantino sort of stays out of it himself like he oh, yeah. is not a person that actually tweets or is involved with like any of that shit and so he seems like almost unaware of a lot of stuff it's certainly unfazed and then say. people like project this anger onto him it is and it's um... sort of like he doesn't even know what's going on it is appropriate for me that this follows the Jurassic Park episode, though, because when this came out, it did have a little bit of that summer movie magic for me. I got excited about this movie in a way that I really hadn't for like a summer movie in, in quite a long yeah, time. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think there's like some other comparisons I could make to Jurassic Park, so maybe that will come up in a bit. Ooh. So for those of you who are somehow unaware... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, well, just Margot that. Robbie. <laughs> I mean, you're like, okay, holy shit, best cast ever. Margaret Qualley, Emile Hirsch, Timothy Oliphant, Austin Butler, Bruce Dern, Al Pacino, Dakota Fanning. A million recognizable people making like small appearances. Yeah, very packed. There was a ton of casting news and rumors leading up to this movie we'll, we'll touch on that in a bit it was almost like a terrence malick-esque <laughs> thing where like people were filming things and then not showing up in the movie there was different theories as to what the movie was going to be what the script was what the story was going to focus on who the characters were but ultimately it became the ninth film officially or unofficially however you want to look at it by yeah. tarantino he considers it his ninth by the way in the trailers leading up to the movie I just could not piece together what this was going to be other than you know that Sharon Tate and Charlie Manson are like in it. Is well, yeah, which is why I think that people jumped to conclusions and right. they came up with their own theories and how they were going to be mad about it without even knowing exactly what it was but because you, it was so guarded as to what the story actually was. Uh, right. And I loved the way it came out, obviously, but like I had all sorts of weird thoughts and emotions leading up to it as to like how this was going to play out, if this is going to be like a depiction of what happened in life, I just feel like I, I don't know how this is going to work. Yeah, it certainly made me nervous just because unlike his other revisionist histories, this happened only 50 years ago and people are still alive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who, I mean, who experienced it. Sharon's sister is still alive. There are other people who are still alive. Uh, it's not like something where everyone is dead and you can kind of just make up whatever you want. It's a little bit safer to kill someone like Hitler, who doesn't have a lot of fans. <laughs> but you feel like something like this could potentially be more insensitive. Yeah, at one point, one of the rumors was that Sharon Tate was almost going to be like a Kill Bill-esque figure who survives and then comes back to kill Charles Manson like later. That almost seems like a Grindhouse movie. Yeah, that was definitely one of the rumors that was out there and that like Harvey Keitel would play the older version of Manson or something. There were tons of rumors. The budget was somewhere between 90 and $96 million. The box office was $374.3 million. It was his second highest grossing movie ever after yeah. Django Unchained. The reason I brought up the Weinstein thing, because I mean, this is part of the story that obviously what happened there and then now all of a sudden Tarantino's 
stuff is out there available to be bought by somebody else. Yeah, the relationship ended with the Weinsteins, and so there was a bidding war for this movie. Sony ultimately won that by offering the budget that Tarantino wanted, plus final cut, plus a huge percentage. When we say this movie did well, it's kind of hard to say that Sony really made a lot of money from it because I think they had to pay Tarantino a lot of the initial box office. And he's going to own it himself in, like yeah. I think, 10 years or 20 years or something like that. So like Sony's not even going to retain ownership after a certain point. It went on to get 10 Oscar nominations. It won two for Brad Pitt and production design, both well-deserved. I thought probably should have won more. Yeah. Just so happened that everybody got parasite fever. I don't want to like reignite a whole Oscars talk, but it is kind of weird because I found myself now. The more time that goes on, I am appreciating Brad Pitt's performance. I think and giving it more credit than I initially did. I've always loved him in this movie and loved the character. I just didn't think there was a lot of flexing going on. Not a lot of, and I don't mean of his muscles <laughs> but because um, there is plenty of yeah that. <laughs> exactly i don't know but he does I, I, he does just bring this such a great screen presence to it and maybe it's not it's a acting, more subtle character but, than dicaprio's yeah. who's the more flashy part but i also thought dicaprio should have won best actor over joaquin phoenix which i i don't know that that was super popular because everyone was definitely on the the joker bandwagon at least for acting i don't know i thought DiCaprio was awesome. I thought this should have won Best Picture, too. Not that Parasite isn't awesome, but I've sort of changed my mind as to what I think qualifies as a Best Picture winner. I mean, it's my own personal thoughts, which should be movies like A Star is Born or Get Out or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Something that's like popular and catches the zeitgeist and is great. I agree with you on that, and I feel like we talk about that not infrequently. I used to not really think that because I was like, it shouldn't be a popularity contest, and I don't really want to turn it into one. It's not like I'm saying the Avengers should win Best Picture, but it should be some combination of both worlds where it's going to resonate with the most amount of people. That's just yeah. like the way I think of it now, and I thought this was the perfect candidate to win, but that's not how it played out. But I love Parasite, too, so it's not like I'm yeah, I know, complaining about it. It's quite just, a bit. But completely different. How type many times of movie. have I watched Parasite since the theater? So far, zero. I don't think that's going to stay the same, or I don't think that'll be. I saw it twice in the theater. Consistent, but uh, yeah, this movie, I don't know. Probably seen it ten times now. So this episode might be a little bit different. I do have notes, but it's not necessarily as detailed as some of the other ones, just because of the crunch time with trying to get the Jurassic Park episode up and Thanksgiving and everything else. So we're in peak season right now, trying to churn out those episodes. Yeah. We took our break. Now the holiday season's coming up. We're not really doing any Christmas movies per se this year, although, you know, who knows? We'll see. Not like last year where we tried to throw in like alternate Christmas movies. But anyway, this episode will be more of a hangout style, just like? like, once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which in a lot of ways is kind of a spiritual sequel to Jackie Brown. Okay. Jackie yeah. Brown gets into a heavy plot, but it's really only like the second half of the movie or even like the last third of it. There is definitely like a hangout element to Jackie Brown. Absolutely. A huge portion of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a hangout movie. Yeah, yeah. And more and more, this is one of those things where you see a movie, you watch it several times, and it starts to just feel like this is what the movie is. And sometimes you kind of forget about your initial reaction or your initial feel when you're watching it the first time. 
I can kind of understand some people having like a strange reaction to this the first time you see it because the movie is these long scenes taking place over what two days and then all of a sudden six months later and then this big climax it it does kind of have a weird pace to it Tarantino has already launched into some of his related materials which he always has teased with some of his other movies famously with Kill Bill there's always the idea there's going to be more the Hateful Eight, he talked about putting it on as like a stage production. He always is like wrapped up in the movie like well after the fact, but it's still continuing with this one because yeah. as of now, there is still talk of this Bounty Law spinoff TV show that he's putting into production. I don't believe that it'll ever happen, and I certainly don't believe Leonardo DiCaprio would be in it. Yeah, right. But it has been talked about, and it seems like he really wants to write and film 10 episodes of some show called Bounty Law. I think it's a terrible idea. I agree. In fact, it feels like more often than not, that's the case with his other ideas after the movie kind of wraps up. But this is certainly repeated behavior by him. It's like I always would hear whether it was going on Opie and Anthony or Stern or whatever, like always talking about like these things that he'd want to do Yeah, to flesh these things out more. And they almost never come to fruition. The one that seems like it might, though, is that Tarantino just signed a deal, a two-book deal, with, I think, HarperCollins or some other publisher to do two books, one of which is like a nonfiction book about 70s movies, like a deep dive, and then the other is going to be like a novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is how I think he first approached the story before like kind of whittling it down into a script. He wrote like a lot of backstory for Cliff Booth, which is like Brad Pitt's character, so I could actually see that happening because it's supposed to come out like next summer. Sure. Yeah. So I'm assuming that means he's already well into it and it's going to come out that fast. That is one that piques my interest a little bit more than some of these other things he's talked about. I'd be curious as to what he's like as a novelist because he's often talked about wanting to write novels and books after doing movies, which is weird because it seems like the book industry is kind of like a non-industry at this point, but he's always talked about like wanting to get into it. The one thing is, and I mean, it really has nothing to do with Tarantino more is just general life observations that this seems to happen. Like when someone is great at something and then they give it a go at something else, it just, it it feels like it does. You know, I guess if Michael Jordan had gotten a little bit more time at baseball, (laughs) It does just always feel that way, though. Someone who's... I I mean, he's never really taken it on the chin for a movie that he's done. You know what I mean? Like Grindhouse was close. Okay. That was like a pretty much a financial disaster. Yeah, fair. And the reviews were mixed, but that's probably the closest. Yeah, it still didn't feel like it got trashed. Like, people kind of just let it be. No, I mean, it didn't really get trashed, but that's that's just the closest. I would be very interested in the novel. Well, it's kind of play- it's like playing with house money. It's like if it's terrible, people yeah. will just kind of be like, eh, whatever. Right. It's not the same as him doing a movie, which is like terrible or panned or something. Yeah. So we're doing this a week after Jurassic Park, which is sort of the ultimate science fiction fantasy. In that movie, it's bringing something from the past back to life, but it's still very futuristic. It's like a future dream world. Whereas Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is almost the same thing, except... It's all fictionalized, and the dream world is really that of like one person, the creator of it. But the idea is almost the same, where you're taking something that seems impossible and making it happen 
And instead of it being science fiction, it's more of just like a fairy tale, which is how Tarantino approached the story, like a, a fairy tale set in Hollywood. To me, when people come up with all these reasons to be negative about the movie and have all of these like hot takes about this and that or the other thing, it always just seems to me like they're missing the point of like what this movie even is. Yeah. Because as you said, it's such a positive movie, like you don't understand where this negativity comes from all of this other shit is just like white noise the point of the movie is so simple and it's such a nice sweet fantasy of something to happen and being like what if what if this happened instead and wouldn't that be so much better and like these people didn't get murdered (laughs) and people have like turned that into like all this other shit right yeah this portrayal of this golden age of, of hollywood and look at these great characters that existed in this world and something horrible happened and it ruined everything. Yeah, and I think the movie's built upon Tarantino's own nostalgia. He was a very young kid in the 60s, but had memories of driving around in cars like this, listening to the radio with songs that like yeah, the yeah. ones we hear with the DJ patter and the commercials and everything and seeing what the different buildings look like and the marquees and the movies that were in the theaters and all of that stuff. Yeah. That sequence towards the end, which has nothing to do with anything, but it, it's just such a great feel-good moment for me when they're running through all the, pla- you know, the Taco Bell and everything. All the lights like, come yeah, on. Oh, yeah. it looks awesome. Hey! You're Rick fucking Dalton. Don't you forget it. Rick Dalton is an actor. Cliff Booth is his stuntman. So the basic idea here is we have Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. He is a television star. He was on a show called Bounty Law. He played a character called Jake Cahill. And this is sort of based upon Wanted, Dead, or Alive, which starred Steve McQueen. It was kind of the same idea as this show. Dalton and Booth, his stuntman, are modeled after Burt Reynolds' relationship with longtime stunt double Hal Needham. Reynolds was actually cast as George Spawn in this movie before passing away, and he would ultimately be replaced by Bruce Dern. It's kind of a sad thing. I mean, not that Burt didn't get to live a long life, but he was like Tarantino's favorite actor, and he finally got to work with him, and it didn't work out, Yeah, that is a bummer. I don't think I realized that before. I was reading about it, getting ready for this episode, that he was supposed to play the George Spawn role. Yeah. And some of the stuff with Rick Dalton's career and life beyond just his relationship with Cliff is sort of based on the early career of Reynolds before he really became like a big star. Right. Some of the fake movies yeah, yeah. are the, similar. are very similar yes. titled and stuff. The episode his... of FBI that we see right. is actually a real episode that had Burt Reynolds in it and they just like superimpose leonardo dicaprio which they do like a couple of times it's almost like forrest gump esque. yeah and the version that they shoot of it for the movie is like actually really cool i'm like i want to see this episode of fbi nice gum chewing dalton is also modeled after a couple of classic hollywood cowboy stars like ty harden or ralph meeker who then faltered as times changed in the 1960s which is sort of something that you see repeated in all kinds of art just the idea of the changing of the guards i feel like we've talked about that in countless movies it's it's something that is always brought up and this is sort of a weird meadow way to approach it which is like a guy who's dealing with that but is also an actor so 
this double layered thing. The Rick Dalton character ends up being a lot more layered than I think you initially get. They throw in the whole thing that he makes a comment about how people will never forgive him for that last season of Bounty Law because he thought he was going to have like a movie career. And then I feel like the whole thing with the stutter, I kind of go back and forth on this because it feels like they're portraying him like he's supposed to be an actor of kind of limited range and talent. But I also feel like his performances are always, there's something to it where in his normal life, he's kind of like bumbling and stuttering all the time. I don't think that they're portraying him as, as, as if he has limited talent. I think it's just supposed to be he is a horse's ass, which okay, is what yeah. he calls himself. Right. But I do think he's supposed to be talented. Okay, because yeah, I think, which makes sense, because he's good in the things that you see. Him yeah, like. I think ultimately, and we'll get to this in a minute, but I think the people in this movie, especially Rick and Cliff, are the people that Tarantino idolized as a kid. Yeah, yeah. And he picks them to be the heroes in this fairy tale to save the princess at the center of it. That's right. That's basically it, and so... I think he does look lovingly at a character like Rick Dalton, and I don't think he would think that he doesn't have talent. Yeah. It's more just like he's got a lot of other problems. Right. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Including maybe being like bipolar, but definitely an alcohol problem, definitely a crisis in confidence. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Definitely a very delicate ego. (laughs) A lot of (laughs) issues in that sense. Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt, is a World War II veteran, a Green Beret, an all-around badass that... Pitt and Tarantino modeled after Tom Laughlin's portrayal of Billy Jack, which was like a series of movies built around that character. Mm -hmm. Booth is modeled after a few significant stuntmen of the era, and there's some tie-in. And throughout this movie, all of it is very layered and tied in with each other. And if you know the history, like if you've read Helter Skelter, like I have, and probably like a lot of people yeah. did. It was a huge book when it first came out. I which saw the made-for-TV movie. Like the details that the prosecutor, Vincent Bugliosi, came up with during the trial and all that stuff. But it provides a lot of details and insight, so you, you get more familiar with the Manson family and all the different inner workings of it and all this, the crimes that led around the, the main murders. And there was a stuntman murdered on Spawn Ranch. Okay. And so... That plays into what you're thinking during the scenes in this movie. I see. Yeah, if you I didn't know, know that, that little no. nugget, you're like, okay, is, is Cliff Booth supposed to like represent that guy? I will say when you get to that scene in the movie, there is such an eerie feeling to it, like something bad is going to happen when he gets there. Yeah. So that makes sense to me. That was something that I did not know, though. Yeah, and I don't think like you need to know it, but if you know these different things, it's like, okay, so a stuntman is layered in with this and oh bruce lee actually was a friend of roman polanski and sharon tate and did train sharon for that movie the wrecking crew so it's not just oh we need to find another reason to put bruce lee in here it's like that's mixed in with everything like it's all very like connected and layered in it a lot of thought went into some of this stuff i think his wife whose death is alluded to and we also see the buildup of in a flashback echoes the death of natalie wood there's a million other references to real life people and characters and different things that are built into the characters of this movie. I didn't want to write them all down and go through them all. Yeah, Just I needless to say, them. it's all woven in with real Hollywood history tied into these fictional characters. Yeah, as well. even it kind of feels weird that Steve McQueen is in one scene, you know, as a character. Yeah. Well, he was someone that was also tied in with it. Well, that's that yeah. had a history with Manson, maybe. Right. And was on this supposed kill list that came out yeah, that Manson well, had. I read or some that he bullshit. was supposedly he was supposed to visit yes. the house that night. Yeah, 
And he had some run in with <laughs> one of my favorite things. I remember like Artie talking about this on, I don't know. I think it was like when he was on Opie and Anthony's like a guest or something. It was, okay. it was after Stern or something. He was, th- they were talking about like Manson and then talking about like how there was that rumored list that existed that had like Steve McQueen on it. And then like Frank Sinatra was on it. Oh wow. Yeah. And he was talking about how like somebody was interviewing Frank Sinatra and told him this, Hey, you're on this list of people that charles manson wanted to kill and frank sinatra's response was let him out let him out (laughs) (laughs) i'm not like a big sinatra fan but i thought that was pretty badass (laughs) it was a weird time and whenever the murders first happened nobody knew what the fuck was going on so people thought a lot of like famous people who lived very carefree lives because things were a lot different then and they would interact with people they didn't know and they would buy drugs from people that didn't, you know, like different things. And it right, became right. panicked and basically changed everything, really. But I'd we'll get to so. that stuff later. <laughs> Hopefully. I don't know. I don't know how much we're going to be able to talk about the real yeah, the yeah. real deal. So Booth and Dalton are Tarantino's version of the tough guys. And for lack of a better term, heroes, a TV cowboy and a stuntman. They will ultimately end up needing to save the damsel in distress who is Sharon Tate who was a real person murdered by the Manson family in August of 1969. I'm like, what? This is news. (laughs) I will say, I understand where your fear was coming from, because ultimately you don't know how it's going to be and you do get worried. But I do feel like because of Inglorious Bastards and to a lesser extent Django and stuff, I felt like it was pretty likely that it was not going to play out exactly the same. Fair. Yes, and I was having a hard time picturing... If this would have been the first time he did it, then it would have been... Like, yeah, we would have been building up to that end, like, real panicked as to what was going to happen. Yeah, because you would have been like, what the fuck? But, I mean, even when you get to that part of the movie, the build-up to the scene ends up starting to be, like, goofy and funny when they're in the car talking about recognizing Jake Cale and him him being on, like, (laughs) Texas Lunchbox. Yeah. Well, I think definitely by that point, just because, like, I was pretty familiar with the names of the people who actually were there and some of the details i was like well it already seems like this is kind of different yeah yeah so i was growing in confidence that we weren't gonna actually have to watch the murder of a pregnant woman at the end of this but it is like such a testament to like tarantino's ability though because he's so able to throw in goofy stuff but still have it feel like tense and like you don't know where this is going once upon a time in hollywood is a blend of real life and fiction and i think in some ways it's maybe his best job of doing that yeah not that i don't love inglorious bastards or django unchained but those movies are so much their own thing like they almost take place separate from the reality of those times we're like yes world war ii really happened but almost nothing in that movie seems like it's real whereas in once upon a time in hollywood it's very intertwined all together and the stuff with Sharon Tate up until the last hour of her life yeah. seems like that pretty much could be a biography or part of a biographical movie of her. That all, say, that's all based in reality. Yeah, minus like the last whatever, 25 minutes of the movie, it mostly feels grounded in reality, which I would say is very different from Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. I don't want them to see Jake Cahill. I want them to see Caleb. I hired you to be an actor, Rick. (laughs) Not a TV cowboy. You're better than that. Obviously, Tarantino is obsessed with movies. And so Sharon Tate 
was an actress and she got murdered and she was pregnant. It was horrible. Yeah, yeah. Why wouldn't we want to correct that in our imagination just like we could correct World War II in our imagination or slavery and have like this badass freed slave kill a bunch of slave owners like it's just <laughs> fantasy our like version of this movie like our like tarantino version is we make a movie where we stop justin timberlake from revealing janet jackson's nipple at the super bowl <laughs> <laughs> so that wwf and jerry springer and howard stern could still be popular <laughs> in south park yeah <laughs> Weren't the late 90s and the early 2000s great? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can't we go back? Oh, God. I thought you were going to say, like, I don't know what you were going to say. <laughs> Stop Justin Timberlake from breaking up with Brady Spears. <laughs> that, too. <laughs> so what is your history with the 60s culture and the Manson family and everything going on during that time? Because for me, the combination of Tarantino and this subject matter, I mean, yeah. we're right up there in Jurassic Park territory for how much this hits home. I was a little older, obviously. Right. I wasn't obsessed with the 60s, the same age that I was with dinosaurs. But I remember like in middle school, which was like the height of the 60s revival during the 90s, where like bell bottoms were cool, peace signs were cool. Like yeah, yeah. 60s culture and music was like kind of having a moment. I was obsessed with all this shit. I read a Jimi Hendrix biography, Jim Morrison biographies, books about the 60s, books about Woodstock. I was, like, kind of a dorky kid, but I was, like, into music, so I was into, like, 60s music and stuff, and the Manson stuff was, like, fascinating to me, Woodstock, yeah. all this shit. And so this movie is just great. I mean, this is, like, crack for me. Yeah, I mean, I am not deeply familiar with all of the details of, like, the Manson story, but I dated a girl in high school who... <laughs> who was in the Manson family. She, pro she probably would have been if it was the 60s. She... Was into like the Sex Pistols and the yeah everything from the sixties too. Like it was just all this shit that like, no one else I knew was into at the time. But she was very into like the Manson stuff. Had the Helter Skelter movie. But then there was also a made for TV movie. I I feel like that came out around that time that I was dating her and we watched it together. I'm sure it wasn't great. No, no. But it is compelling just because it is so fucking crazy that this guy was able to convince these people to do all this shit. In fact. I think we talked about it on one of the episodes, but for like season two of Mindhunter, they like get into this stuff and they're yeah, like it's the same guy. That yeah, it is the same guy. Charles so Manson. they do a an interview with Manson, and they also do an interview with a, a guy playing uh, Tex, and it, it's a lot about how that this guy was able to like influence these people to do this stuff. It is just like such a wild thing. Yeah, I don't really understand the mentality that goes into it. A movie we did last year, or no? Earlier this year, I have lost all sense of time. Inherent Vice. Oh, right. Touches on a lot of this stuff, too. It does, yeah. Even like that scene. Charlie with, Manson again? Well, yeah, there's a lot of references, but even that scene with like Catherine Watterson, where she's like nude and she's like yeah. running through like different fantasies that Doc might have. And she's That's talking right. about like the Manson girls, like the teeny boppers who will do whatever you want or whatever. And he's yeah. like, Have you been stealing my mail? <laughs> well, come to yeah. But yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, these girls, on the surface, they seemed normal. They were young, pretty, had potential or something, but there was something in their lives that like, he would exploit and sort of just find what they were missing and then be that for them. And then, I don't know, it, it's a lot of crazy tactics. I don't really know how people learn how to do this kind of shit. Because yeah. it wasn't like 
Charles Manson was like a smart guy. He's not like some criminal mastermind or some brilliant sociopath like the Zodiac Killer or something. Like Charles Manson was like an idiot. <laughs> and that's something you learn in Helter Skelter too, is that Bugliosi is portraying him as if he's like got these grandiose plans. I don't know. I never really bought into this whole thing of Helter yeah, Skelter and the Me race either. war and that they were going to live in the desert and then black people were going to rise up and take over but then look for a leader and all this shit and Bugliosi also said that Charles Manson looked at him and his watch stopped in court right basically acting like he was a witch or something I mean come on I just don't think there's any evidence that Charles Manson was actually intelligent and had these kind of detailed plans which is why his control over these people is all the more baffling come to think of it I do recall watching that made for tv movie or whatever and there was something about this whole thing that like creeped me out even it made me feel so weird even more so than the the ending which was certainly uh gruesome and and sad but just leading up to the murders the fact that they would just kind of like drive around and like just break into people's houses and just i I don't know like lay on the floor in people's houses in the dark (laughs) and like just do like weird shit it was so unsettling to me and it kind of builds to the idea of exploiting people's the fact that they just left their doors unlocked and after all this stuff happened and the way people were in society after these killings happened i don't know that part always made me feel so weird that they would just like go into people's houses and like (laughs) lay on the floor yeah move shit around yeah i think something that doesn't get brought up in this movie obviously because they're stopped on the first night that you need to it needs to be said that it wasn't just the first night. There was the next night all the way in a different part of town where they murdered the LaBiancas. So it's kind of known as the Tate LaBianca murders. And one of the disturbing parts of Helter Skelter is how long it took the LAPD to connect them. Oh, wow, Even yeah. though they were kind of like equally brutal with like words written in blood and all that shit. It took them like forever to even realize they were related. Wow. Well. <laughs> yeah. So Tarantino started with Cliff Booth. It sort of evolved from there. He built up this huge backstory, decided to set these characters next to Sharon Tate. It becomes this fairy tale set in Hollywood. Really interested in the actor-stuntman relationship, which he says that he basically learned from an actor he used in a movie who had been with the same stunt guy for years and that he felt like this project they were working on was either going to be like their last or second to last thing like it was an ending partnership right and he kind of became fascinated with it yeah and i mean this isn't the first time that he's used a stuntman character in a movie yeah there's a lot of ties to brad pitt's character in inglorious bastards but also kurt russell's character in death proof that's right Tarantino decided he was confident enough to approach this movie as like a day in the life style rather than try to come up with an elaborate plot because he did consider an Elmore Leonard style story at one point. Okay. But then thought it would be more fun just to just spend time with the characters, which does work well. I do think it works too. But I do think the first time you see it, if you don't know what to expect, it's kind of a, let's just say a unique approach. So this movie gets announced, Tarantino, Manson Murders, 1969, start hearing all kinds of crazy casting rumors. At first, it's like Brad Pitt, Jennifer Lawrence, and Margot Robbie with Samuel L. Jackson maybe in the mix. Then you start hearing Leonardo DiCaprio might be involved. Then Tom Cruise might be involved. And apparently, Tom Cruise was considered for the Cliff Booth part. And at one point, there was a rumor that Brad Pitt was going to be like the investigator 
investigating the murders, which ultimately don't even happen. So yeah, I don't really know what that is. I kind of think some of this stuff is just he was like playing his character from Seven. Yeah, and then Harvey Keitel was rumored, and then like Al Pacino, and you know, just all this different stuff. I think Jennifer Lawrence was maybe rumored for like Squeaky from. Wow. Okay. Or one of the Manson girls, yeah. which would have been a weird part for her if unless she was it was bigger. Like, right, yeah. I feel like she would have had to have more lines. <laughs> Maybe she could have been Pussycat, who is definitely the Manson girl that's in it the most. Yeah. Some of them are based off of real ones, and some of them are more like amalgams of ones right. that are okay. yeah. not quite real. Like, Squeaky is real. Yeah, and the th- girl who leaves, Uma Thurman's daughter, that was like the girl that was... The one that they had as a witness, right? Yeah, but she didn't leave, though. In real life, right. but like... Yeah, but that's not her... Her name in the movie is like Flower Child. I think that's oh, okay. her... It's like something Linda Caspian or something was like the real one. Right, that's true, yeah. Caspian. Sadie was one of the real murderers, but... And so was Tex, obviously, but the other one I don't think was the real name. It's like a mix. It's always yeah, a yeah, mix. Yeah, yeah, okay. And some of them on the ranch that don't go to the murders, you know, some of them are kind of based on real ones, and some of them are just... Because I don't know if there was any set number, especially with some of the peripherals. Like, I think people wandered in and out as sure. to being, like, a part of it. Yeah. A lot of feet in this movie, too. People noticed that. I will say that that was uh, frequently commented on in the aftermath of this I movie. I think it's fine to joke about it. I don't really know what the big deal is. I don't really think it's, like... I have to say... Anything that upsetting to, like... It mostly goes unnoticed by me, and I think it's... I noticed. I don't... But I that's because I yeah. know Tarantino loves feet. Right. I, I don't fetishize feet, and I don't find them gross either. So it's kind of just like, if feet are on screen, it doesn't really distract me. <laughs> it just seemed like the scene in Cliff's car with Margaret Qualley's feet like on the windshield. Yeah. And then Margot Robbie in the movie theater with her bare feet like up on someone else's seat. Those just seem so obvious. I, I know, yeah. <laughs> But I don't know. It's like another one of those things that people try to like make a controversy. You know, it's just their feet. It's not that big of a deal if someone's like into feet yeah. and wants to show them in a movie. I don't understand. And we why do that would know that problem. it's oh, basically it seems just like a running joke for him <laughs> now to like include some sort of feet material in movies. So, the movie had absolutely tireless production design, turning 2018 into 1969. Barbara Ling won an Academy Award. For this movie, Tarantino wanted her to do it because she recreated the 60s in the movie The Doors, which I thought was hilarious because The Doors came out in 1991. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, it was probably a little easier to recreate the late 60s in 1991 than in 2018. Not as much time between, yeah. Yeah, 1991 is closer to 1969 than it is to 2018. Yeah. But whatever. They did end up having to digitally alter some scenes to take out certain buildings and change stuff i don't think tarantino wanted to but i think eventually they were like well it's impossible right to to recreate it without doing that but it looks great and some of the stores that they got to change their storefronts decided to like stick with it because they they thought it looked cooler the vintage look yeah because i've talked to you about this before like when you see old movies when they go into stores or go into places and how everything looks different and unique right yeah now everything looks the same everywhere in every place and probably people were like oh this was cool this was a time where every place looked different and interesting the soundtrack is awesome oh yeah 
golden age rock and roll, the 60s commercials, the DJs mixed yeah, in. Yeah, you mentioned it. I love the radio guy doing his little hitting the beats before the yeah. songs come in. The real deal. Yeah, the voice is awesome. Yeah. I wonder I don't I don't know if it's like real recording from the time or if that was like recreated. I'm not actually sure. It feels recreated, but it would be pretty cool if it was real. I, I do like the Don Steele. Yeah. <laughs> I do like the one part where like the, the dudes on the radio It's a sunny day in LA, no smog, so of course that actually means a lot of smog. <laughs> I would say like once I saw the movie, heavy rotation of the soundtrack on my Spotify. Yeah listening to like all of these songs a ton of times just like any tarantino movie just great pools songs you never heard before songs you forgot about yeah a lot of feel good moments for me when cliff is driving around and songs are just bumping in fact you know at the one part when they play mrs robinson it reminds me of another what feels like a period piece the graduate just another movie that so much great atmosphere to it that was the best acting I've ever seen in my whole life. Like you. So the movie begins in February of 1969. Rick Dalton is an actor in crisis, and he's meeting with Marvin Schwartz, who's a casting agent played by Al Pacino, who has taken an interest in Rick Dalton and sees him as possibly being a leading man in spaghetti westerns and other Italian films. Kind of an interesting appearance for Pacino. I thought I read that maybe Tarantino even wrote this role for him. Yeah. But... I don't know. It's, well, he probably just wanted to work with Pacino, and Pacino's like 80 years old. Well, that's so true. You're kind of limited yeah, as right. to what he could be. <laughs> that's true. I know. It, it's certainly not a bad performance by any means, but it, it almost feels like a wasted role on Al Pacino. Well, I think Jessica Lange was originally going to be his wife, and his wife ends up with zero lines. Oh, so, wow. Okay. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I think Tarantino's always got grandiose ideas for every single part. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Like, Jennifer Lawrence will be a Manson girl who says two lines. It's like, yeah, I don't know if that's going to work. I love the diversions in this movie, and it's full of them, and that's such a Tarantino thing, because right away we're seeing little flashes to the movies themselves, Tanner, The 14 Fists of McCluskey. Oh, I know. Planting the Flamethrower Seed. Plus little diversions like showing that Rick got too many drunk driving tickets, and that's the real reason why Cliff drives him around. That's right. And all these different things. And it sets up how things will work later when we have flashbacks and then flashbacks within flashbacks and different oh, shit I like know. that. Yeah. <laughs> the first time you see it, it's actually kind of disorienting a little bit where you're I like agree. trying to follow what's happening. Yeah. It's it, it, jumping it, to all these different things. When you get to the part that's the flashback within the flashback, it is that's kind of hard to follow. It, I think it's hard to put together what he's really trying to say there the first time you see it. So Marvin's point is, hey, you're doing all these guest spots on different TV shows every week after Bounty Law was canceled. And at the end of each episode, you're going to do a fight scene because you're playing the heavy for the week, the bad guy for the week. And you're going to lose these fights to all the different lead characters. (laughs) It's an old trick pulled by the networks, and you know it's basically going to ruin your career. And he's talking about basic audience psychology, and it's the same shit that you would use in like pro wrestling or something about 
building up who you win versus who you lose. And it's funny because it's taken across a multitude of TV series. And I don't really think that that would apply today because there's so many channels and nobody is watching the same shit. Like, your neighbors are not watching the same shows as you. So you can't really build yourself up or tear yourself down by winning or losing fake fights on TV shows. But in this era, there's like two or three channels. Right. Everyone's seeing these shows. You're seeing the character Jake Cahill losing to all these fucking randos every week. And you're not going to be taken seriously as a leading man anymore. It made me think about the movie Dr. Sleep, by the way. Oh, wow. Okay. Because remember I was like saying to you that one of the things that bothered me was... And I actually do like Dr. Sleep overall, but it kind of bummed me out that the main kid in that movie was like not selling the villain at the end. And basically was like, I'm not afraid of you. Like from the beginning. Right. And you're like, well, why would the audience be afraid of her then? Yeah, that's a good point. Because you have like Rebecca Ferguson putting together this character. It's supposed to be scary. It's a horror movie. And yet you have a kid, a child being like, I'm not afraid of you and being serious. And you're like, make it a little counterintuitive. Well, then why would the audience be afraid of her then? But whatever. So that's like kind of the same mindset of how you act on a thing or what happens in a thing is going to influence how the audience feels and reacts. And so they're talking about Rick's career in general. But I do like that the idea of even talking about that, like kind of like the psychology of the audience and recognizing actors as certain characters. Because I do like when directors play with that, when people are kind of cast in certain roles because of other things that they've played. You know what I mean? Because it, it kind of like evokes a certain feeling. Yeah. It's sort of like a meta casting yeah. that happens a decent amount, actually. Sometimes it can kind of be detrimental to a career because then it becomes like typecasting. Yeah. yeah. But Rick's face during this conversation, <laughs> he just starts getting like real oh, tense and upset. You can see that yeah. what Marvin is telling him is like really it's hitting, hitting home. Yeah. Well, and then like afterwards when he's talking to Cliff about it, he's just like, he just told me a bunch of truth. <laughs> I'm a husband. That's right. Yeah. What we're going to learn about Rick is he's an emotional wreck. He starts crying several times throughout the movie, usually to comedic effect. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of Rick scenes in this movie that remind me of well, myself. That's, that's what I mean. <laughs> remind me of Matt. I know. That's why it almost feels, though, like you think this guy's not good or something, just because he does kind of come off as a bumbling idiot at times. Well, I think you can be a bumbling idiot, but still be a good actor. Okay, I agree with that, and I think that's being said here. But I don't even know if he's a bumbling idiot. I just think he's emotionally fragile Yeah, I in would a agree. comedic way. Sure, which I can definitely relate to. Because some of the times that he starts like getting choked up are hilarious. That's true. And some of the biggest laughs in the movie, frankly. And I mean, certainly when he's reading that book and getting choked yeah, up. Yeah, that's what I mean, I'm talking yes. about. That whole sequence yeah. is so funny. So Rick does not want to do italian movies and he thinks that's beneath him yeah i do love cliff's reaction to this conversation because he is just like you talking about being offered a chance to go make western movies in italy doesn't sound all that bad to me (laughs) yeah it's cool that tarantino would put this in there like i said i think he likes the character of rick dalton and respects that idea but at the same time you know tarantino probably loves oh yeah a lot of these spaghetti westerns but he has them talking shit on them and i think in terms of like if people aren't really sure what they are it was a popular thing where italian directors would basically recreate american westerns but they would be filmed in italy (laughs) (laughs) yeah and most of them are kind of terrible but 
fun though. The Sergio Leone ones are considered masterpieces and amongst the greatest films ever made. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, mm-hmm. the Man with No Name trilogy. Those are spaghetti westerns too. But there's a lot of like other lesser ones. Nebraska Jim. Yeah, the real version of that stars Burt Reynolds. I think it's what Navajo Joe or yeah, something I like think that's that. Right. But like Django. Yeah. Not Django Unchained, but Django is like an example where he got the name Django, obviously. So clearly he's a fan. And that's, I think, all you need to know about how I feel about the Bruce Lee scene, too. It's like, just because he's portraying this made-up version a certain way doesn't mean that Tarantino isn't like the biggest Bruce Lee fan ever. Oh, yeah. I think people just take this like way too seriously. But anyway, when Rick and Cliff leave Musso and Franks, we see the Manson girls looming and it's always a reminder of mm-hmm. where we are, when we are, and what is coming. Nothing creepier than a group of girls just like singing a song together. Dirty girls in the street, yeah, bare right. feet, singing songs, digging through dumpsters. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's usually how I look for dates. <laughs> Try to find some chicks digging through dumpsters. Yeah, well. <laughs> right away we get Rick's feelings about hippies, which is sort of a a comedic beat throughout the movie cliff seems more neutral yeah which is funny because he's like the war veteran from world war ii yeah but he has some sort of anti-cop takes as we find out that's why he's originally able to kind of get along with tex a little bit yeah and one of the girls in the group that they pass a couple of times cliff and her exchange looks and they cross paths throughout the movie, and he's got his eye on her, and it's a uh, pussycat played by Margaret Qualley. Pretty cute, insanely skinny. Yeah, there's a sort of a strange sexual tension almost right away. Which is weird, because you are just like, this age gap seems nuts. And then Cliff goes on to talk about their age difference, or I guess yeah. at least how far away <laughs> she is from being of the legal one. Cliff drives Rick back home. Roman Plansky and Sharon Tate are Rick's neighbors. They arrive home, too. This sort of brightens Rick's mood because he's <laughs> yeah. like, well, I could just meet them and I could be in a Plansky movie. This is basically... Everything's going to work out. In the aftermath of Rosemary's Baby being like such a huge movie, and that's what he's alluding to. The film then takes its time to stretch its legs. It's a style that became more common in the 70s and has sort of fallen out of favor. We see Cliff's drive home, the entire thing. That's right. Going through different songs, driving through 1969 Los Angeles. This is some of my favorite stuff in the movie, all of this filler. Going to to his trailer, which is behind the Van Nuys drive-in, which doesn't even exist anymore, and they recreated in a series of ways that included like a model with model cars oh, and wow. all kinds of crazy shit to like make this look real. Yeah, we get a little glimpse of what's going on in Cliff's life. (laughs) Kind of familiar. Sharon and Roman, they go to the Playboy Mansion. That's almost pointless to anything. We meet Brandy in Cliff's trailer. We get a little insight into Rick's alcoholism as he immediately is downing a bunch of whiskey sours as he's trying to learn his lines for this Lancer pilot that he's going to be in. Three souls drifting through a Hollywood dreamland all headed in their own directions, although Cliff is a little bit more tied in with Rick's direction. But the idea here is Sharon is on the ascent, essentially. I mean, I guess a case could be made that Sharon was maybe not going to become a big star if she had stayed alive, that maybe she was going to turn her attention to being a mother. But the idea is she's part of a happening 
couple that's invited to the Playboy Mansion hanging what? out with yes. Mama Cass and Michelle Phillips and Steve McQueen and Jay Sebring. And they're part of like the glitterati. And Rick is getting drunk, <laughs> learning his lines for some stupid TV yeah. pilot where he's going to be killed off in it. And Cliff is going to a trailer to make shitty macaroni and cheese <laughs> and feed his pit bull, Our Brandy. People. Yeah. <laughs> okay, the Playboy Mansion party. One of the things I wanted to say about it, surprisingly not that wild. Yeah, I agree. I was there expecting no topless, topless chicks, chicks in the pool. Uh, well, this was like Tarantino's slavish dedication to authenticity yeah not just in recreating 1969 but he like insisted on the real playboy mansion which was tricky because hugh hefner had died and it was sold oh wow and the new owner was trying to renovate it and was like not really into having a movie film there and it was like this whole thing and it's such a not important part of the movie and Um, yet he's like it has to be the real playboy mansion we have to recreate the van nuys drive-in we have to do all this stuff it's kind of cool well i watched the criterion of polanski's Macbeth, and it's braggart playboy <laughs> pictures that's like the production company at the beginning oh yeah of it, which it's kind of jarring to see for like a shakespeare well they were adaptation. a little bit more dipping their toes into a lot of stuff playboy yeah. was like a big media company at one point but of course you know i had already seen once upon a time in hollywood at that point i'm like oh there, there's a tie-in between polanski and the playboy mansion there you go. What about Sharon's outfit at this party? Sharon Jesus looks Christ. good throughout this. It's insane. We we haven't really talked about it, but I mean, good lord, like every outfit so watchable. Yeah, when she shows up <laughs> and screen. starts dancing with Mama Cass and Michelle Phillips and she's just like kind of shaking her butt in that little outfit. I mean, good grief. Yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> Margot Robbie, man. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> There's several points in this where you just fucking lose your mind. Yeah. Start sweating. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a story. She was engaged to him. And she flew to the UK to make a film with him. And broke off her engagement with him and married him. Then they moved to Los Angeles. And the three of them have been inseparable. (laughs) Really? What's up? Jay loves Sharon. That's what's up. And he knows... As sure as God made little green apples. So one of these days, that Polish prick's gonna fuck things up. And when he does, Jay's gonna be there. Well, one thing's for sure. Yeah? What's that? Sharon absolutely has a type. Cute, short, talented guys who look like 12-year-old boys. McQueen is there, played by Damian Lewis. Steve McQueen tells us, by way of telling someone else, he's telling the audience the history of Sharon Roman and Jay Sebring, where Sharon was engaged to Jay 
goes off to make a movie with Roman, ends up engaged to Roman, but Jay just <laughs> has not gone away. Yeah. <laughs> and he's basically implying that Jay's just going to wait out their marriage and then just be there. Yeah. And I was like, well, Listen, you know. <laughs> wouldn't you stay latched on? Well, yeah, it doesn't really seem like either of them, Roman or Jay, are in a position to tell the other what to do. So I guess yeah. Roman is just to deal with it. I guess Sharon Sharon's Tate, calling all the shots. Yeah, she has that kind of sway. Because yeah, let's be honest. You take away like talent and fame out of it. There is no reality where Roman Polanski should be married to Sharon Tate. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> it would be like me being married to On a Sharon day Tate. <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah, or the modern yeah. equivalent. So the next morning, Sunday, February 9th, is sort of the bulk of the movie where we spend time with our three leads. Rick films an episode of Lancer. And he's told by the director that he was hired basically to be an actor and not a TV cowboy. That's right. Which you could read into that, not Jake Cahill or not Rick Dalton, which is yeah. hard for Rick to understand because the director means this as a compliment. But it also kind of goes against what Al Pacino was saying about what the network's plan would be to include him in a role. Yeah, like it this. does completely go against it. But that's the thing. Yeah. No, it is complimentary of... Yeah, Rick's thinking is actually yeah. very much like Marvin Schwartz's is. Right. And so that's why he doesn't really understand even what the situation is. And it is a compliment, though, in a way. We're not using you because you were J.K. Hill. We're using you because you're a good actor. But he's not really grasping that. I was reading, and you might have notes on this, but I was reading that DiCaprio was having a hard time doing this whole sequence because him playing another character, it was hard for him to play the character as if it was rick dalton playing the character and not how he would play this caleb they two yeah character and i guess it was or at least from what i was reading he kind of pitched the whole like i'll need to stop and ask for a line and then also the whole like meltdown in the trailer afterwards yeah i know to help I've, break it up i saw like a lot of that too and it, <laughs> it's always like one of those things where you find out about like the stories behind movies and you're yeah. like, well, what was the original idea? Then? Right. It seems yeah. like such a major thing. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I don't know. That's part of making a great movie though, is yeah. a collaborative effort and taking in great ideas from everybody and sort of knowing what's going to work best Yeah, and not being married to something that might not be the best idea right. just because it's your idea. But I do think that does work and, and, and it helps sort of build that whole yeah this guy is good because he is playing that scene in such an enjoyable way to watch but then you do kind of go back to the insecure nuts rick you don't eat lunch i've got a scene after lunch yeah eating lunch before i do a scene makes me sluggish i believe it's the job of an actor and i say actor not actress because the word actress is nonsensical it's the actor's job to avoid impediments to their performance. It's the actor's job to strive for 100% effectiveness. Naturally, we never succeed, but it's the pursuit that's meaningful. Who are you? You can call me Marabella. Mar Mar Marabella what? Marabella Lancer. No, no, come on, come on. What's your real name? When we're on set, I'd prefer to only be referred to by my character's name. It helps me invest in the reality of the story. I've tried both ways, and I'm always just a tiny bit better when I don't break character. And if I can be a tiny bit better, I want to be. 
You're the bad guy. Caleb Deca too. <clears throat> Thought it was pronounced Caleb Dakota. I'm pretty sure it's Deca too. Deca too. Deca too. Deca too. We meet Trudy Frazier, a young actress played by Julia Butters. It's hard to understand if she's a regular. I mean, her character's last name is Lancer, but this is the pilot. I don't know if her getting kidnapped in the pilot is just supposed yeah. to be like a one-off or if she would be a character that was going to be on this show I forever. I was have, kind of having a hard time figuring out like what the general premise of this show is i mean I, it seems oh yeah like, i could not figure because he seems like he's friends with jim stacy i was like is at it, one point yeah which that's the timmy oliphant character right yeah like, and isn't he the lead that's what it so isn't seems he a like, lancer too right but then he's saying lancer yeah i don't know lancer was a real show but i i didn't really want to look into it yeah i know but then it seems care. like <laughs> what do you read it's a biography in walt disney Fascinating. He's a genius, you know. I mean, a once in every 50 or 100 years kind of genius. What are you, 12? I'm eight. What are you reading? Just a Western. What does that mean? Is it good? Pretty good. What's the story? I haven't finished it yet. I didn't ask for the whole story. What's the idea of the story? Well, <clears throat> it's about uh, this guy who's a bronco buster. It's a story of his life. The guy's name is Tom Breezy, but everyone always calls him Easy Breezy. Now when Easy Breezy when his, was in his 20s and, and, and young and good looking, he could, he could break any horse that you could throw at him. Back then he just had a way now he's into his uh, late 30s and he takes a bad fall and messes up his hip. He's not, he's not, he's not crippled or anything like that, but, but he's got spine problems he never had before and he spends uh, more of his days in pain than, than, than he ever did before. Cheapers, this sounds like a good novel. Yeah, it's not bad. Where are you in it? About midway. What's happening to Easy Breezy now? Uh, he's, um, he, he's not the best anymore. In fact, far from it. And he's coming to terms with what it's like to be slightly more used Slightly more useless each day. It, it's okay, Caleb. It's okay. Sounds like a really sad book. Poor Easy Brazy. I'm practically crying, and I haven't even read it. About 15 years, you'll be living it. What? 
Nothing, pumpkin puss. I'm just, I'm just teasing you. You know something, you, uh, you might be right about this book. I think it hits harder than I gave it credit for. I don't like names, like pumpkin puss, but since you're upset, we'll talk about that some other time. <laughs> so while they're waiting, he reads a book next to Trudy, and he's reading this Western... I'm sort of trying to breeze over some of the details. It's a very funny scene. The girl is hilarious. She's like the mature adult in a way. Yeah. But she's also a parody of method actors, which I think is intentional, which is funny because I think there have been stories that DiCaprio might take things too seriously sometimes too. And it seems like this is a parody of actors getting into like that method headspace and the fact that it's like this little kid saying these ridiculous things yeah, yeah. is definitely supposed to be funny. I know. And it is. There's actually a joke in here that kind of it seems like such a Zach joke when after the whole easy breezy thing and he makes the little comment about you'll know what it's like in 15 years or something. Yeah. In 15 <laughs> years, you'll be living it. Yeah. She's like, I'm practically crying and I haven't even read it. And he's like, well, in 15 years, you'll be living it. <laughs> It's another crisis of confidence where Rick is explaining the plot of this Western novel that he's reading about a guy who breaks horses named Easy Breezy. And he's realizing that the story of Easy Breezy could very well be his story and how he's not in his prime anymore. That's right. <laughs> he starts crying. Yeah. <laughs> Every day, just an emotional breakdown. Well, When you're hitting the whiskey sours that hard, you know, the depression yeah. sen- tends to set in. The lead on this show is an actor named Jim Stacy, played by Timothy Oliphant, and he approaches Rick Dalton to like meet and greet him, say how happy they are to have him, and all this stuff. And then he brings up how Dalton may have been close to getting the Steve McQueen part in The Great Escape. And so here's another thing that Tarantino's layered in. He knows that McQueen is like tied in with Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski and the Playboy Mansion, and potentially. Charles That's Manson, right. so yeah. he he makes it so that Rick almost got the huge part of The Great Escape, and so then we see DiCaprio as Dalton I know, inserted into footage of The Great Escape. It's funny and looks awesome at the same time. Yeah, you're like, well, could we see this whole movie? Right. <laughs> but the music, like the little like slam on the piano <laughs> yeah. keys, like, dumb, <laughs> whenever Jim Stacy brings up That's this right. whole story, yeah. like, you know that something dark in rick's mind happened here but we don't know exactly what it is that's right and showing us these scenes makes it even more confusing because a lot of different theories were out there like oh yeah did he actually was it like eric stoltz and back to the future did they film stuff and he he was fired was he actually very close or did he have it at one point or or was this just his fantasy was the whole thing a lie did he make it up that he was close to getting it and start floating that out there. Who knows? Like, we don't really know. And that's right. what's like, kind of fun about it. We actually see footage of this episode of Lancer, but it's shot like a movie, like a Quentin Tarantino movie. Everything's going fine for a while, but then disaster. Rick forgets some lines, has to go to his trailer, has this insane meltdown. Oh, yeah. One of the funniest <laughs> Very parts like of the, the movie. Yeah, really, like, kind of just reminds me of, like, when I was getting ready for work in the morning. <laughs> just, like, walking. You had to have eight! <laughs> Hey, whiskey, sir. <laughs> what the fuck was that? Jesus. 
Jesus Christ! Fuck! Shit. Damn it, Rick. I swear to God. Fucking lines! Embarrass yourself like that in front of all those goddamn people! Well, you're drinking all night. Fucking drinking again. Eight goddamn fucking whiskey sours. Miserable drunk. You fucking remembering your fucking lines. I practiced them and now I don't look like I goddamn practiced them. You're sitting there like a fucking baboon. <laughs> I hate fucking whiskey, sir. I couldn't stop at fucking three or five, right? Why? You're a fucking alcoholic. You fucking drink too much, huh? Every fucking night, every fucking night. That's it. That's fucking it. That's fucking it. You stop drinking right now. Alright, make a promise to yourself you're gonna stop fucking drinking. Oh, fuck. oh. Ah! Look at that little fucking girl. You're gonna show that goddamn Jim Stacy. You're gonna show all of them on that goddamn fucking set who the fuck Rick Dalton is. Alright? Let me tell you something. You don't get these lines right. I'm gonna blow your fucking brains out tonight. All right, your brains are gonna be splattered all over your goddamn pool. I mean it, motherfucker. Get your shit together. I love when he's like, I'm never gonna drink. Not another drink. And then he immediately takes a sip yeah, of yeah, the flask yeah. and then throws <laughs> like it out it the door. Ends with him threatening to blow his own brains out. <laughs> Pointing at himself, making a threat to himself in the mirror. If you don't get these lines right, I'm gonna blow your fucking brains out all over that pool. But whatever happens in there, he comes out of it with renewed determination That's and right. a confidence. Talks himself up. The likes of which we haven't seen. This is a, a different version oh, yeah. from the rest of the movie. So they shoot that scene with Luke Perry and the Stone Age's own Clifton Collins. That's right. Tack. <laughs> yeah, who was also like in Westworld playing a just random. Well, there are people Western out there, obviously, character. who are like, yeah, I'll just do anything to be in this Tarantino That's right. movie. Like yeah. Scoot McNary. Oh, is yeah. in this yep. as well for like one little scene. There were people that were in the Bounty Law thing like Michael Madsen. Obviously, Madsen's going to do whatever. The gang. He's it's in his the car, gang. that yeah. Cadillac they're I, driving I around I read in. that too, and it's also in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, it's the car from Reservoir wow. Dogs. He's, he's had it the whole time. It looks incredible still. Yeah, it does. I love that the director, Sam Wanamaker, who's kind of a fun, weirdo character just thrown into this. He's like yeah, asking for eccentric. evil, sexy Hamlet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what does that even mean? Right. <laughs> So Rick does this scene with Trudy where he's kidnapped her and then her brother is one of the Lancer guys played by Luke Perry and they have this little negotiation. Rick does some fun improv. He like throws her off of his lap and she goes onto the floor and is like loving it. <laughs> yeah. And the director is praising him. It went great. Right. And then Trudy comes up to him and whispers in his ear that was the best acting I've ever seen. And it's like a genuine compliment because he's so... A, he's so low, but B, he's, like, so blown away by her. Oh, I know. He was, like, so impressed with her, which is so sad. Right. He was just like, holy shit, she's, like, a real actress, the way that she was carrying on. Yep. And so when she says this to him, he starts crying again. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where we get Rick fucking Dalton, which is something that Cliff had told him when he dropped him off for the day. And Brad Pitt, I guess, got that from somebody somebody saying it to him him. when he was, like, a young actor or whatever. So it's like, well, what memorable lines to tarantino right i know because movie. it's like if if him doing the rick fucking dalton thing wasn't in the original script I, that's such a big part like tying that line you back know? to what was said to him it all works out yep meanwhile cliff 
goes back to Rick's house to fix his TV antenna on the roof. This ends up with him reminiscing and then ultimately ends up with him paying a visit to Spawn Ranch. So on his way back, another encounter with the Manson girls. This time it's Quali and Sydney Sweeney just on a bench. And you're like, these two chicks are Uh, hitchhiking. (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) The 60s was incredible. Really? (laughs) Yeah, you'd be like, those are the two oddest homeless chicks I've ever seen. Brad Pitt gets up on that roof, pops the top. It was like a holy Audible shit moment. gasp in the theater Just from for, me. From you, yeah. yeah. You were like, holy smokes. Yeah. It's hard not to sit here as a <laughs> adult male and, and not notice. <laughs> not appreciate yeah, I what's mean, going good, on. Really. Just looking a great. A guy in his like, mid to late 50s it, at this point. One strives, but can't no. ever imagine. It's too much fun eating like six bagels a day for Absolutely. me. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. I'd rather just eat the bagels. Pizza three times a week. Three. Yeah. <laughs> this is where we get the infamous Green Hornet flashback involving Bruce Lee. And yeah, we've we've kind of touched on it a few times, but this really seemed to be the thing that people were dialing What has a lot of problematic things, not only the Bruce Lee thing, but then the flashback within a flashback yeah. of... The incident with Cliff's wife, played by Rebecca Gayhart. That's right. So basically, on Green Hornet, Rick is putting in a word for his friend. He wants to get him on as a stunt guy, as a double for him. So he's going to the gaffer on the project, who's played by Kurt Russell, a guy named Randy. Randy doesn't want to use him. He's like, he creeps me out. I don't dig the vibe he brings to set. Yeah. My wife doesn't dig him. We're like, what, 45 minutes into this movie? And this is the first we're hearing about any of this. And it's kind of like shocking the first time. You're like, whoa, this is a totally different version of this guy that we didn't know about. Yeah, because he has such an easygoing personality. You wouldn't really expect this level of darkness from his past. But I guess it makes sense. And they're kind of building into this thing that, like, aside from being Rick Dalton's stunt double or as he points out more of like his gopher just kind of like does odd jobs for him and drives him around he's certainly more his driver than his stunt man at this point well i think the implication is that the stunt work has dried up because of the incident yeah so basically randy just drops a bombshell and he's like he killed his fucking wife and rick is like defensive about it and being like oh you don't believe that old bullshit and he's like yeah i do and more importantly my wife does and so we get this brief little flashback on a boat where his wife is played by Rebecca Gayhart, of all people, showing up out of nowhere. She looks good. Some people were, like, kind of keying in on that she seemed reminiscent in this scene of Angelina Jolie. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and trying to make that a thing. I don't necessarily mean that, that yeah. there were, like, articles written about it, like it was offensive, but people kind of joking that, like... Oh, oh yeah. Maybe that was the look they were going for here. I don't know. You don't actually I, see her get killed, but... Right. It's funny because so the scene sort of builds way. towards yeah. that moment where he's holding like a spear gun at yeah. her almost. Just and then like the sound of the waves get real loud and then it cuts right back to the trailer yeah. with Kurt Russell and There's and definitely DiCaprio. something's being implied here. So that's that history. Ultimately, Rick talks Randy into letting him on. So he's going to put in wardrobe and then this is... I love that though. It just kind of... It's, it's like, the guy's a goddamn war hero. Like that's the thing that always... It's like got that in the back pocket you can use it to just spin anything <laughs> so then they're waiting around and this is the thing that bothers people especially bruce lee's daughter kareem abdul jabbar who is bruce lee's good friend 
you wrote like a thing about it. And I get it. I, I get that this portrayal of Bruce Lee, I mean, it does. Tarantino was sort of blending a lot of different things here where he was justifying some of this stuff. I think the thing that people need to keep in mind here is that this particular flashback is from Cliff's point of view. 100%. So, of course, Bruce is going to come off as more of like this arrogant ass who needs taken yeah. down a peg. And be- then he, of course, is going to look great in this fight. Right. And also might be a reason yeah, why he's viewing him this way because it's like, well, this might have been an opportunity for him to get his career going again. And then he blew it because he was, like, getting in a fight with this dude. Right. And B, if you take it a little bit closer to face value, this is supposed to be a bona fide. This is what Al Pacino was talking about. That's right. The whole point of this is to convince the audience that this dude is a badass because of what happens at the end of the movie. So it works both ways. I think the idea that it's his version of the events makes the most sense because it's his flashback while he's up on the roof. I would agree. And right. So much so the that whole thing with after it ends, he has an audible reaction to it. Right. Okay, so Bruce Lee's kind of just talking to talk, and he brings up Cassius Clay and other boxers and whatnot, and Cliff just laughs, and then it leads to this whole thing. And then Cliff's basically like, if you are suggesting you'd be anything other than a stain on Cassius Clay's trunks, you should be embarrassed. And here's the thing. In real life, Bruce Lee did say that he would never be able to, to beat Cassius Clay. All you need to know is Cassius Clay was the heavyweight champion. It's Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Bruce Lee is not a heavyweight. He wouldn't even be close. I mean, he'd be knocked out in a fight in two seconds by a heavyweight boxer. I mean, it's not like a real thing. And he's, he admitted as much in real life. Now, where Tarantino got this from and was sort of basing it on was Bruce Lee's wife's biography okay. about him where she said that he would be... It's kind of unclear if Bruce Lee ever even said anything like that about cash Clay. it seems like he said the opposite but it ultimately doesn't matter because it's just this made-up thing to put over and a made-up scene that's just like really sort of i feel like this is actually like the most cartoonish scene in like the and there's whole exaggerated movie. things like when they actually have their little competition here he throws bruce into the side of that car and it crinkles like oh yeah it's fake or something and it just seems like very overdone to placate his own ego as if whatever happened between the two of them it was worth him losing his career or him fucking up his career as a stuntman because he, got... he kind of held his own against bruce lee yeah and there's been talk that tarantino originally wrote it as cliff winning and then brad pitt was like well we can't do that it has to be like a draw yeah and, you know kind of toning it down a little bit and the guy who plays bruce lee mike moe does like an unbelievable job oh yeah and he was also kind of like unsure of it but i think ultimately what they ended up with this version of it is fine it's like a funny draw because then you have zoe bell and kurt russell running into the scene out and they're like he was kicking bruce's ass and bruce is like well let me just no one was kicking bruce's ass." these two with a little reunion from uh death proof yes now i admire cassius clay i do What I admire is, in his sport, there's an element of true combat. When Cassius Clay meets Sonny Liston in the ring, that's not two athletes posturing. That's combat. Two men trying to kill each other right now. If you don't beat him, he kills you. That's beyond athletics. That's beyond wide world of sports, you know. That's two warriors engaged in combat. That's what I admire. 
in martial arts tournaments. They won't let you fight like that. It's very frustrating. You stand in front of a guy and you just want to let him have it. But you can't. So you got to do this play acting patty cake version. Cassius Clay, Sonny Liston, Joe Lewis. The colored boxer, not that white kickboxing asshole. They do what they need to do to win. They unleash as much punishment as they have to to defeat the other guy. But in martial arts tournaments, I do to win what they do to win. I unleash all my power. I kill people. Well, if you fought Cassius Clay, who would win? Well, that would never happen. But if you did, what do you think would happen? I'd make him a cripple. <laughs> hey, you. What's your name? Me? Yeah, you. My name's Cliff. I'm Rick Dalton's stunt double. Stuntman? Yeah. You know you're kind of pretty for a stuntman. That's what they tell me. So, did I say something funny, stuntman? Yeah, you kind of did. What's so funny? Look, man, I don't want any trouble. I'm just here to do a job. But you're laughing at what I'm saying. But I'm not saying anything funny. So what do you think is so funny? What I think is... You're a little man with a big mouth and a big chip. And I think you should be embarrassed to suggest you be anything more than a stain on the seat of Cassius Clay's trunks. Brother, you're the one with the big mouth. And I would really enjoy closing it, especially in front of all my friends. But my hands are registered as lethal weapons. That means we get into a fight, I accidentally kill you. I go to jail. Anybody accidentally kills anybody in a fight, they go to jail. It's called manslaughter. And I think all that lethal weapon horse shit is just an excuse so you dancers never have to get in a real fight. Okay. How about a friendly contest? No punching in the face. Two out of three. Who puts who on the ground first? Nobody tries to hurt nobody. Just who ends up on their butt? That's a great idea, Cato. You know, Bruce, that guy's kind of famous. That guy? For what? Killed his wife and got away with it. That guy? That guy. Cato. Try that again.
after he gets done reminiscing about the time he fought Bruce Lee, he sees Charlie Manson show up at the Polanski residence looking for Terry Melcher, but only Jay Sebring and Sharon are at the house at the time. I wasn't really getting this, though, because like, they always show this gate that you have to like go through to get up the driveway. But Manson just seems to like walk up to that. Well, they sort of just like cut that down. And yeah. then there's like a whole. Did you watch the deleted scenes ever? I did watch them. I didn't get through all of them. Yeah, there's the part where I he goes down to the other house. Like the there's like a property owner or whatever, and then he's like this conversation. Basically, this supposedly really happened. There is like a witness that Manson did show up at that house looking for Terry Melcher before the murders ever happened. Although I don't think there's any indication that he and Sharon saw each other, but I don't know mm-hmm. for sure. I think that is mentioned in Helter Skelter, but I don't remember the details. Terry Melcher was an American record producer, singer, and songwriter who was instrumental in shaping the mid to late 1960s California sound and folk rock movements. His best known contributions were producing the Birds' first two albums, Mr. Tambourine Man and Turn, 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 Okay. as well as most of the hit recordings of Paul Revere and the Raiders and Gentle Soul. Paul Revere and the Raiders featured heavily on this soundtrack. He is also known for his brief association with Charles Manson. This is the best part of this Wikipedia thing. His brief association with Charles Manson, a songwriter and cult leader who was later convicted (laughs) of several murders. I love how songwriter gets top (laughs) billing. (laughs) Wikipedia, come on. (laughs) Most known for songwriting yeah and he went on to produce beach boys shit later like kokomo like the terrible beach boys shit like that came out yeah way into like the 70s and 80s so manson did have a relationship with melcher and dennis wilson from the beach boys that's where this comes in because melcher was renting that house before tate and polanski moved in so there's always been a lot of debate about what really happened that night. Were they looking for Terry? Was he confused and thought Terry was going to be there and was pissed about his re- his music right. career not happening? Or was it some other shit? There's all different kinds of stuff. What about Sharon's outfit here? Those jean shorts? I mean, Jesus Christ. There's not, I mean, I know that we're just pigs at this point. And there's but. not a bad look for her, in this, <laughs> for her in this movie and probably not ever. I mean, yeah. Margot Robbie, just an all-time yeah. universal babe. Cliff's got time to kill. He doesn't have to pick up Rick till rap, so he's finally able to pick up the pretty hitchhiking hippie. She's based on a character who Charlie sent into the city to try to lure rich guys out there so that they could like get money from them and, okay. and sort of milk them. It was basically like a hot chick to like reel yeah. in people like as bait. This is kind of like her gig right. is to do this. She's screaming like fucking pigs at these passing cops, and then... Within a few minutes of her being in Cliff's car, she's offering to suck his cock. That's right. Hello, hot stuff. Looks like third time's charm. Mmm. How are those pickles? Real good. They were the fancy kind. Mmm. Mmm. Hey, Mila? Where are you going? I'm going to Chatsworth. Chatsworth. <laughs> you hitch up and down Burbank Boulevard all day till someone says they'll drive you to Chatsworth. Tourists love to drive me. I'm their favorite part of their LA vacation, you know? They'll be telling stories about Hollywood, hippie girl, that they gave a ride to the movie ranch for the rest of their lives. Wait, Spawn Movie Ranch? Yeah. That's where you're going, Spawn Movie Ranch? Uh-huh. Well, why are you going there? I live there. 
Alone? No. Me and my friends. So, you and a bunch of friends like you all live at Spawn Moving Ranch? Yeah. Well, hop in, I'll take you there. Great! I want to go down here and get on the Hollywood freeway. I know where it is. Are you some old cowboy guy that used to make movies there? Whoa! <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm surprised how accurate that description of me really is. Some old cowboy guy that used to shoot movies at Spawn Ranch. So you used to make westerns at the ranch back in the old timey days? Well... If by the old-timey days, you mean television eight years ago, yeah. Were you an actor? No, I'm a stuntman. Stuntman? That's way better. Why is that way better? Actors are phony. Oh. They just say lines that other people write and pretend to murder people on their stupid TV shows. Meanwhile, real people are being murdered every day in Vietnam. a ride out to the Spawn movie ranch. You do wonder about Cliff's motivations here. Yeah, it does seem like he does have a sexual interest. Maybe he thinks, like, maybe she does have a license that I can yeah. see that she's 18. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. It is strange that he's just like, yeah, I'll give you a ride all the way out to this fucking place, but then be like, I'm definitely not having sex with you, which, okay, maybe he's just a good guy, but it doesn't seem like it's in character that <laughs> right. that would be something yeah. he would do. <laughs> Cliff knows this movie ranch because it happens to be where they shot Bounty Law. That's right. And this is sort of the centerpiece section of the movie because other than the end of the movie, it's not like there's a ton of action or plot in this movie. It's a lot of just like 
what's going on at a various points of time. Yeah, and I, but I will say this is the first time that it really feels like the mood changes a little bit because there is definitely a creepy vibe to what's going on. Oh, yeah, Tarantino always flirts with the idea that he would do a a horror movie. Oh, yeah. And this is probably the closest he's come in terms of, like, a large section of a movie where there's a horror movie vibe and there's an uneasy feeling to the whole thing. Definitely. There's, like, these dirty ghosts hanging by the doors and windows. I mean, they're actual people, but they just sort of, like, are staring. And it builds towards the very intense suspenseful moments of actually going into george's house the daughters of hollywood really pop up in this movie yeah and kevin smith's daughter too (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was good yep but yeah we have harley quinn smith margaret qualley is andy mcdowell's daughter ethan hawk and uma thurman's daughter is in this bruce willis's daughter pops up later in the movie who am i missing i know there's more oh boy yeah, I don't know. I don't know who else. But yeah, it's like a recurring thing throughout the movie. It's people's kids popping up in it. We meet Gypsy, played by Lena Dunham. Oh, no. I actually kind of like her in this movie in a yeah. weird way. <laughs> I would probably be the last person you would think would be like <laughs> putting over Lena Dunham, but I it kind of like brings She's okay in a, a vibe role. to this. Yeah. Where you're just kind of like, I could definitely see her being in this group. <laughs> Danielle Harris, a, a favorite of the show. That's She's true, yeah. pregnant, and she plays Angel. Tex is played by Austin Butler. Sydney Sweeney's in the mix. A lot of other young girls. Dakota Fanning. <laughs> yeah, we'll meet Dakota Fanning in a minute. There's a house at the very end of the lot where George lives, and Cliff wants to go see George because he remembers George from his time working at this ranch on Bounty Law, but the girls, including pussycat and some of the others they have these weird excuses they sound odd they sound fake we're like oh george is taking a nap and it sounds like they're just making it up as they go and like when he's addressing them as the group pussy's making it up but then the rest of them seem like they're scrambling just to even come up with the facial reactions to agree with what she's saying it is it feels all very put on and like they're hiding something yeah which i think is intentional on tarantino's part to make it yeah, yeah. suspenseful like what the fuck's going on because he thinks either they've already killed george or they're just taking advantage of him i don't know if he's jumped to murder yet but he's like something weird is going on with this this is why are all these hippies living here right it doesn't make any sense at the house is a whole bunch of other hippies and the leader of this group i guess when charlie's not around is squeaky and squeaky is one of the famous manson girls they shave their heads during the trial the ones that weren't on trial the ones that were like outside it was such a media circus it's hard to imagine like anything like that kind of shit happening now that is wild i was thinking about this in the lead up of doing this episode i didn't know when to bring it up but i mean okay from the middle of july of 1969 okay to the middle of august of 1969 I'm going to give you three things that happened. First ever moon landing. The Manson murders a week later Woodstock. Yeah. In a month. That's why uh, (laughs) 1969 is such a pivotal, just remembered year. And it was sort of the end of an era. And it was like the coda to the summer of love from like two years earlier. And this was like the dark aftertaste that ended everything. Yep. And sort of what Inherent Vice is talking about. But 
I don't want to go down that road no. <laughs> again. I feel like people are still trying to figure out what the fuck I was talking about from that episode. <laughs> we don't have the time for that. <laughs> so Cliff goes back to this house. Squeaky's kind of trying to put him off. But sh- her story does match up with what Pussycat just said. It's like, would they all have just come up with the nap story? Yeah, Because how many people are showing up here being like, I want to see George? Yeah. I have to say, Dakota Fanning, kind of a remarkable role here. <laughs> like, you just... Don't yeah. expect her to show up and be a character like and this. And she's so greasy looking yeah, and yeah. Like kind of unhinged. And just her delivery of these lines are so like Oh, she's abrupt. so like crass. <laughs> yeah. She's like I, I fucked his brains out this morning. Yeah, a girl so like in tired. her young twenties is talking about like this eighty year old dude. <laughs> like I fucked his brains out this morning. And that is what happened. They were yeah. basically these people who were murderers and terrible people in a lot of ways. They did not kill George, and George was very old, and but he lived like a few years after the trial. I think he died in like the early 70s at some point. Yeah. But he was blind, and he was old. They basically did give him sex to just let them live there. Wow. <laughs> and it worked. Yeah. Imagine getting that offer. Well, yeah, I don't know how that even works in a way. I, I guess <laughs> yeah. you have to like open with the sex and then be like, can my friends stay here? And right. Since you he's have blind, all these, he probably doesn't have any idea how many there are. You have all of these unused set buildings from Western television that isn't shot here anymore. Cliff makes that long trek back to the back bedroom, and the suspense is built up partially on that knowledge that I was sharing with you before, that this could be a scenario where Cliff ends up murdered. The first time you see this yeah, movie, yeah. you don't really know what the story is. And he gets to that bedroom, and George is there, and he is asleep, and... George is played by Bruce Dern. And it's kind of funny because he has no idea who Cliff is, has no idea what Cliff is talking about. Right. And George ultimately dismisses Cliff's concerns. Yeah, right. He basically confirms everything that these girls were saying, even though it seems so suspect. And it seems insane that the girls are that concerned about if George can stay up late enough to watch TV with them at night. right. That he needs to take this nap so that he can watch FBI. Yeah. Which is funny because Rick is going to be in FBI. (laughs) Yeah. And he does talk about watching TV and says watching all the time. I'm like, George, what are you watching? Come on. George? 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 George! Hi, George. Wait a minute. What's going on? Uh, Everything's all right. I'm sorry to disturb you. Uh, Who are you? It's Cliff Booth. Just stopped in to say hello and see how you're doing. John Wilkes? Cliff Booth. Who's that? I I used to shoot Bounty Law here, George. I was Rick Dalton's stunt double. Who? Rick Dalton. Dalton Brothers. Rick Dalton. Who's that? He was the star of Bounty Law. And who are you? I was Rick's stunt double. Rick, who? Uh, It don't matter, George. We were colleagues from the past, and I just wanted to make sure you're doing okay. I'm not doing okay. What's the matter? Can't see shit. Would you call that the matter? The man can't see shit, okay? I'm sorry about that. I I was told. Squeaky sent me to bed. 
Would that be the little redhead out front? What the fuck is the matter with you? First you wake me up, and now you're pretending that I didn't tell you I was fucking blind! How am I gonna know what the hell color the head of the girl is that's with me all the time? Oh, fair enough, George. Oh, Jesus all right. Everyone don't need a stuntman. I don't know who you are. But you touched me today. You came to visit me. Now I gotta go back to sleep. I gotta watch FBI tonight. I watch it with Squeaky. She gets all pissed off if I fall asleep. What happens when she gets pissed off, George? Nothing. I just don't like to disappoint her. So you gave all these hippies permission to be here? Yes, who the fuck are you? I'm Cliff Booth. I'm his stuntman. We used to work together, George. I just want to make sure you're okay. And that all these hippies aren't taking advantage of you. Squeaky? Yeah. She loves me. So suck on that. On the way out, Cliff learns that he hasn't exactly endeared himself to the hippies living on the ranch by That's doing right. this. And the girls are all pissed at him. Pussycat's yelling at him. Clem, this random shirtless, disgusting hippie, yeah. who a lot of the girls seem to be in love with. Has... Well, there wasn't a lot of dudes around. I know. It was a pretty sweet setup. Yeah, yeah. And Charlie was having sex with all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Clem has punctured a tire on Rick's Cadillac, the one that Cliff's been driving around. I, I will say about this Clem dude, very punchable. Very punchable look to him. And it is beyond satisfying when Cliff does start to punch him. So Cliff beats him up and makes him change the tire. Meanwhile, a couple of the gals, Gypsy's like Sundance. Sundance. I love yeah. like their names. Oh, I know. Go Flower Child. Go get Tex. Get his ass down here now. So she runs and goes gets Tex, I guess, to try to take control of the situation. I mean, unless Tex has a gun, I don't know what the fuck they think he's gonna do. Yeah, I know. He looks scrawny compared to Cliff. Yeah, they definitely make Cliff look like such a badass. But it's too late by the time he gets there, and Cliff has driven away. Meanwhile, I know I've said meanwhile, but I don't know if we explain this. This isn't how the movie is. We're sort of just fixating on one character rather than jumping back and forth. They actually end this whole segment basically on that. For sure. But while this is happening, Sharon has her own day, and this is the time that we get to know Sharon. She picks up a hitchhiker, so it shows you that she's sweet and kind and also maybe naive. She operates as the angelic center of the movie that the rest of the film orbits around. Okay. She's always like our bright light. And yes, she is mostly silent, wandering through her day alone. And this became another controversy, complaining about how many lines Margot Robbie has in this movie compared to the two actors. And I was like... Could you imagine being like such a fucking loser that you're counting <laughs> lines? You're yeah, counting well, lines of people in a movie. That, but yeah. 
give me a break. Right. People were just looking for any excuse because not that I f- agree with this, but you could fucking say the same shit about Scorsese. Like, how yeah. many lines do women have in his movies? How many women even spoke in The Irishman? Like, <laughs> over three and a half Is hours. Is there even a woman in it? It's basically like <laughs> Glengarry Glen Ross. <laughs> Not that they should, but nobody says shit about it. And it's like, they just were so desperate for something to complain about with this. Yeah. And it was just embarrassing at a certain point. She goes to a bookstore to buy Roman a copy of Thomas Hardy's Test of the D'Urbervilles which is a movie he would go on to make 10 years later and dedicate to Sharon's memory. <laughs> I remember... I was like, that's funny. Listening to... I think it was like the Brady Salas podcast or something where he talked about that and said exactly basically what I just said. And when I was like listening to it, I got like tears in my oh, eyes. Yeah. <laughs> God. That's the thing. People were so not vibing with this movie the same way we were i mean i was like emotional during like parts of this oh i agree like full-on crying but just processing the whole thing afterwards and like living in it and just being like man i wish like what happened in the movie really happened yeah no i'm with you it actually is almost makes you more sad with what actually happened seeing this movie it it, like gives you this alternate idea and, and then you start honing in on like reality and just how horrible reality is but of course tess uh, another criterion movie yeah starring natasa kinski who right. i think would have probably been sharon had he made the movie earlier yeah next she stops over at the bruin theater which is showing the wrecking crew a film that sharon tate was in which stars dean martin it's sort of like the perfect indication of how lame american movies were f- for much of the 60s and i how agree yes they were sort of at that point like the graduate like things were changing at the end of the 60s midnight cowboy stuff we've talked about on this podcast eventually the last picture show or easy rider yeah. or, or different things there was definitely still a hangover of lame yeah most of the 60s were dominated by italy and france and other countries as being way cooler and way more cutting edge and Sharon was in some interesting stuff. She didn't really have the best or biggest career. Yeah. But this was not one of the highlights for sure. It's kind of a lame little movie with Dean Martin. And she eventually gets in for free. She wants to see it for free. I think Tarantino was basing this on his own experience with True Romance, where he basically like asked if he could see it for free. Oh, wow. I don't know, man. You maybe. Maybe that True Romance needed that on the, the opening yeah, really. weekend box office totals. <laughs> Try to inflate the number a little bit. I'd go see it a bunch of times. Yeah, this is one of those things that I think Tarantino is a little bit out of touch with how people will interpret things. doesn't bother me at all, but it is weird. It's like, yeah, why is she insisting I will say, on seeing this movie for free? It makes her seem kind of lame. Yeah, I, but when he does things like and talks about things like that, I, it is it always just kind of shines through. When he like accepts an award or something, his speeches are always, yeah, <laughs> I, I he, am great. He, I'm happy. He lives that in you... like a fantasy land. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kate Berlant, who's like a comedic actress, she's like the ticket taker, and she has her pose for a picture by the poster, so people will know she is. <laughs> One, please. Seventy-five cents. What if I'm in the movie? What do you mean? I mean. I'm in the movie. I'm Sharon Tate. You're in this? Mm Mm-hmm. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. That's me. (laughs) 
But that's the girl from Valley of the Dolls. Well, that's me, the girl from Valley of the Dolls. Really? Really. Hey, Reuben, come out here. This is the girl from Valley of the Dolls. Patty Duke? No, the other one. The girl from Peyton Place? No, the other one. The one who ends up doing dirty movies. Oh. She's in this movie. Oh. Sharon Tate. Well, welcome to the Bruin, Miss Tate. Thank you for coming to our theater. Would you like to come in and see the show? Could I? By all means. Thank you. Hey, can I get a picture? Oh, sure. <laughs> You know, why don't you stand over by the poster so people will know who you are? Okay. So she goes in and sees the movie. It's real footage of the Wrecking Crew with the real Sharon Tate, which I thought was like kind of a classy touch. Yeah, especially because he certainly could have. Yeah, we've already it. seen yeah. him inject DiCaprio into things that right. he wasn't in, so they could have done it, but they chose to use the real Sharon Tate, which I think was cool because. Even younger people who are familiar with the Manson murders probably aren't super familiar with who Sharon Tate actually was. Oh, I because agree. Because like I said, it wasn't It's not like her movies are very famous. Yeah, she doesn't have she didn't have like a huge career. I wouldn't say the Fearless Vampire Killers is like a well known movie. Oh no. Her <laughs> biggest known movie is Valley of the Dolls, right. for sure. And even that is sort of like a culty kind of movie at this point. Yeah. It's cult for you and I, that's for sure. I think it's beyond cult for us. <laughs> but it's fun to see Sharon in this environment and you know that Tarantino picked this again because he loves movies so what better way to show the person that Sharon was by having her feel joy at the people laughing and clapping and enjoying her movie and she's just sort of basking in it quietly unbeknownst yeah. to the people around her that she's the one on screen well, this is uh, where we get the uh, aforementioned lovely view of the feet yeah see them feet her feet look dirty <laughs> pretty too, dirty you yeah. know that Tarantino Tarantino is like loving that. Well, I think this was just like because the whole part of the deal. Sharon Tate just never wore shoes. Was something that I was reading. Well, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Okay. She was kind of a hippie, I guess. All right. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we see the little inner cuts of Sharon training with Bruce Lee. So Bruce Lee's inclusion in this movie is not just like a random thing. Right. It's all tied together. It all ends on that day in February with California Dreamin' by Jose Feliciano. Pretty cool version of it. I'd say so. And Cliff picks up Rick. They go back to Rick's place. They watch Rick's episode of FBI, which is yeah. actually starring Burt Reynolds. Kind of concluding the hangout part of the movie, but... Providing their own audio commentary. So perfectly. Yeah, I, this, it reminds you of just a, a summer night, hanging with your friends, yeah, putting something on, eating pizza. Like I, I love the vibe of this. And yeah... I think there's kind of some maybe like inside Hollywood jokes going on here. Like if you sit down to like watch something that you were in, like you probably just end up talking about like, yeah, he's like, this guy's, this guy's a fucking a asshole. Yeah. He's like, this guy, good guy, good yeah. guy. <laughs> yeah. And it, one of the famous memes already from this past like year plus has been like DiCaprio pointing at the screen and they've yeah. used that like in a million things. Right. The things that are introduced here, the cigarette dipped in acid, which will come up later. And we also see Marvin, again, Pacino, he's watching too. He calls up this director, Sergio Carbucci, who's going to be the director of Nebraska Gym. And he's right. telling him, hey, turn on this channel. You're 
Nebraska Jim's on the screen. And we don't see it all happen, but apparently Rick feels like he doesn't have any other options, so he agrees to do it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird that it comes right after what feels like a moment of him kind of regaining his confidence. But Six months later is where yeah. we jump to Friday, August 8th, 1969. I didn't really dial in on it until these most recent viewings that it's kind of almost a recreation of the beginning of the movie because it, we start off with like Pan Am aircraft returning and then Roman and Sharon coming through LAX. And yeah. then this is, they do kind of like the same thing here. It's yes. With Rick and his new wife. And I read this too. And I guess you can kind of hear the voice that the stewardess giving him his drink, giving Rick his drink on the flight is actually uh, Margot Robbie. Like you don't see her. Oh, really? Yeah. I like didn't know that. You, you just see like her, her arm and like in the, like the stewardess outfit. But he says like thank you to her or whatever. And she says something. And it does sound like her. Oh, all right. It's kind of a weird thing to throw in. The narration over this sequence is done by Kurt Russell, and we get a little bit of a, a story of Rick's six-month Italian sojourn where he's come out of it with four new movies, a new wife, Francesca Capucci. That's right. I actually rewound it because I was like, wait, is her last name the same as the director? But no, he was Carbucci, and she's okay. Capucci. <laughs> Because I was like, is that supposed to mean something? Is it like the director's daughter or something? I don't know. I have to say. I, Lorenzo is a. Uh, yeah, a, a lot <laughs> a lot can be said about Margot Robbie and deservedly so. Lorenzo Izzo in this movie, I am into and words cannot express. It's almost dangerous. Yeah. I, that well, outfit, hopefully her ex-husband who has listened to this podcast yeah, before. And tweeted about it. He's like, not going to hear this. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow in my mind, I'm like watching this goddess on the screen trans through LAX in that crazy outfit that she's oh my wearing. God. Is it like, is it see through? I can't uh, figure yeah, out I what's know. happening. Right. I'm like, losing but I'm my just mind. like, is it, was she in the house when Eli Roth was listening to our podcast and <laughs> did he put it on speakers or something for a second and she heard us? <laughs> yeah, she's probably like, what is this? That was when they decided to get divorced. <laughs> yeah. Because these two hot because, guys were talking about knock knock. No, yeah, she divorced him because he tweeted something positive about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we just talked about Ana de Armas like that whole episode and didn't even really talk about. Oh, her. I know. Well, that's the thing because I guess I mean obviously when you have an Ana de Armas, she's just gonna steal the show. But I, I don't know. Lorenzo is a well, she's bringing it on a whole other level in this than I've ever seen her. Absolutely, before. yeah. <laughs> it, it just it has to be pointed out. I would be remiss if I wasn't talking about it because I'm so emotionally <laughs> captivated by it. Part of the deal here coming back from Italy is that Rick and Cliff's partnership is going to come to an end because now with the new wife and his career sort of uncertain, he's not sure if he can afford to pay Cliff anymore. So they're going to come back and have a good old-fashioned drunk. And for students of history, we know that Friday, August 8th is the night. Okay. We, this yep. is what we've all been waiting for. And that will actually be told to us in a minute. Man, I'll say this. Out of everything I saw in movies in 2019 or 2020 or for pretty much the last decade, this out-of-time sequence. Oh, I know. It's great. I mean, it is the strings version, which had not come out yet, but whatever. <laughs> it's great for the movie. Yeah, it, it's slightly cooler than the original not cooler but it slightly works better in a cinematic way than the original version of out of time and it was probably cheaper to yeah. use however it just it's so great you mentioned it earlier 
first of all, the walkthrough LAX, which is reminiscent of the seeing that different color tiles from Jackie Brown. Yep. But also the montage of all of the different lights turning on in Los Angeles of all the restaurants oh, and different places. It evokes a feeling. I know in one of the interviews that Tarantino did, he was like a little bit worried that Out of Time was too on the nose because, you know, basically the idea being that like Sharon's out of time and this is the end for her. And I was like, oh my God, thank God he yeah, didn't like overthink this. This, oh, is, this just song is so perfect. perfect. Yeah. <laughs> there have been times where I've watched this and I, you know, I've probably seen this movie like 10 times as well, factoring in the four times in the theater. And. Maybe not 10. I, I'm not as crazy as you. <laughs> I think probably more like seven or eight. Okay. But there have been viewings where this is alone. This song starting, I'm starting to get like, emotional. oh, I know. I'm just like, this is so good. Yeah. <laughs> this it just one... hits in a way that nothing else does. Yeah. Sharon's pregnant now. And you start thinking like, oh, my God, this is so awful. Right. By the way, looking smoking hot, pregnant. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Cliff picks up Brandy. Which is so fucking weird to think that this dog was there for six months. A dog doesn't live that long. I mean, it, <laughs> I guess it could live ten years, but that's like, think of six months of a dog's life, what that is to a human's life. It's like years. Yeah, okay, that is kind of strange. <laughs> Just in this fucking kennel for six months. A dog as dangerous as Brandy, I I'd do be like that she forgot. It does seem kind of nuts that Rick is able to keep Cliff on retainer or whatever he pays him. I guess maybe he can write it into these contracts for these movies, but yeah, it's I mean, like, he's living in a trailer, though. I <laughs> I don't know that he's paying him a lot. I know, well, <laughs> but it, it makes more sense when they're both in L.A., but he's bringing him to Italy for six months and paying Well, for yeah, I'm sure he got him. Well, see, like, they do that p- part where they show Cliff oh, yeah, yeah. stunt. He doesn't have the reputation in Italy, so he probably got the stunt for him in all the movies. That's right. Okay, so then it's like he's just someone who works on the movies at that point. As the real life... Sharon did with her friends, Abigail Folger, Wojtek Frykowski, and Jay Sebring. They go to El Coyote that night, and they have a little in-joke about the New Beverly I know, I caught that, yeah. The the Dirty Movies Theater. That's what New Beverly, which is Tarantino's theater, used to be. The first time I saw this movie, I thought Abigail Folger for a minute was played by Lana Del Rey. I was like, that's Lana Del Rey. I'm becoming one of those guys (laughs) who's just like, oh! And then two seconds later, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, never mind. It's actually the chick from The Love Witch, which was kind of like a popular little indie horror thing. Yeah, Lana Del Rey does seem like that. It seems like it was a miss not casting her in something in this movie. Yeah. Roman's over in the UK, so it's just the four of them staying at the house. At the same time, Rick and Cliff go to Casa Vega while Francesca stays at home and sleeps. Casa Vega is sort of a similar place, but it makes more sense that they would go to the one in the valley rather than the one on Beverly. And it's the hottest night of the year. Which does seem like it would be uncomfortable to be pregnant. Yes. The groups then return home separately to their respective houses. Abigail plays straight shooter on the piano, which is the actual sheet music they found on the piano at the real... Polanski house yeah. after the murders were discovered. Something that completely went right by me. I think something that you filled me in on probably after we walked out. Little of the factoids. Yeah. yeah. I love the little moment here, and other people pointed this out when the movie first came out, but Frykowski's laying on the couch watching the TV show, and that movie host guy oh, turns yeah. to the camera and he goes, And now it's the time for what I know you've all been waiting for. And oh, so it's yeah. like, All right, finally, here's the big Tarantino moment. 
of this movie. We're going to crank this up to 10 now. Over at Rick's house, Cliff's going to take Brandy for a walk, but yeah, well, first he smokes that cigarette dipped in acid. And there's something, and I don't know if you're if it was intentional to make the audience feel this way, but this was the way that I felt. Like Cliff was this badass. He We've already seen him beat up hippies <laughs> in the movie. And, and like this whole thing where they have him smoke the acid-laced cigarette, so it's like you're weakening him, and he's going for a walk. He's leaving the scene. Like I, I don't know. It feels like the guy that that could kind of yeah do you think you're shit. saying you think that this was like an intentional tease to make you start thinking he's not going to be there yeah he's not going to be able to do right that's the way that i was feeling yeah probably because they show him with the dog pass the car yeah, yeah. that's coming up the road and i think what you're saying is, is is what i and probably a lot of people felt which is there's this like pulsing nervous energy during this last 40 minutes of the movie yeah, absolutely where you, finally realize where we are because when the movie starts i knew that sharon and the rest of these people were murdered in august oh yeah and so i'm like february i'm like that's so far from august right what is this and then it goes for two hours and you're still on the same day yeah. you're like, well, what the f- are we doing the murders yeah, or yeah. not like what's happening and then it's like oh six months later and it's like oh shit it's right like, here we go coming up cielo drive in a loud shitty car is Tex Watson, two of the girls that we saw at the Manson Ranch earlier named Sadie and Katie, and a fourth one who we didn't meet at the ranch named Flower Child, played by Maya Hawk, daughter of Uma and Ethan. Yeah, someone who I I did not have on my radar at all until that third season of Stranger Things. Well, yeah, I didn't either. That was like her big breakout. So they drive up, they pass Cliff, and they're immediately confronted by a drunk and furious rick who's bitching <laughs> Who about their car yeah bitching that they're hippies that are come to do drugs they're staking up the streets he's paying property taxes up the butt as yeah. he says. <laughs> but he's where he's got like his trying to find a dark street to smoke a doobie on blender of margarita, margarita. Yeah. <laughs> that he's drinking from and I yelling at that them. part and around midnight a completely drunk rick dalton started making margaritas <laughs> Fucking private road. Damn property taps is up the butt. God damn. Bunch of goddamn fucking hippies. What the fuck? Hey, you! Yeah, asshole! I'm talking to you! What the hell do you think you're doing bringing that noisy hunk of shit around here at midnight? This is a private road, all right? Who are you? And who are you here to see, huh? Nobody, sir. We just got lost and a little turned around. Oh, horse shit. Fucking hippies came up here to smoke dope on a dark road, huh? Next time you want to try that, fix your fucking muffler. Look, we're really sorry we disturbed you. Look, Chief, you don't belong here. Now take this mechanical asshole and get it off my fucking street! Hey! Dennis Hopper! Move this fucking 
piece of shit. All right, well, just give me a moment to turn it around. Well, drive it backwards, dumb nuts, but fucking drive it and drive it now. Okay, okay, stop yelling. Hold your horses. We're leaving. The hell are you looking at, you little ginger-haired fucker? Hey, come around here again, I'm gonna call the fucking cops! Dirty fucking hippies. Once this was like on Stars, and I still had Stars for a while, and I had yep. like signed it in over at my parents' house, my dad was like finally watching this movie. I went over when he was like probably like an hour into it, and I just like watched it with him and my sister. And like <laughs> during that scene where he's like freaking out in the trailer, yeah, and he's like he's not you know he's not gonna drink anymore. And then like that night when they're watching FBI, he's like drinking beer. <laughs> My dad's like, I thought he said he wasn't gonna drink anymore. And I was like, he's an alcoholic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that easy. It's not like he's just like I'm not gonna drink anymore. Right. And that's it. Of course he drinks the yeah. rest of the movie. <laughs> Yeah, this scene's actually hilarious because they have a gun and they're there to kill people, yet they're kind of, like, afraid. They don't know what to do. Right. They're, like, panicking that this guy who looks insane in, like, a robe and drinking this margarita is, like, out of yelling. a blender is yelling at it's them. It's, like, so intense. In, in fact, to the point where, like, Tex is, like, reaching for a pistol and yeah. he, like, slams his fist down, completely unaware of the fact that they have, like, weapons and stuff. He just, like, slams his fist down. It makes Tex, like, jump. <laughs> hey, Dennis Hopper. Yeah. Move this piece of shit. Move this mechanical asshole. <laughs> so then they back down the street. Which does seem like it sucks. Is this the real Cielo Drive? No, I don't think so, because the, the actual house is gone. Okay. And the, been replaced by, like, a huge mansion, like, oh, way wow. bigger. So The entrance to this road does seem like a huge pain in the ass, though. Yeah, I do it's think it's like probably similar. Yeah, I mean, you've seen other movies filmed in Los Angeles, and it does seem like in the Hollywood Hills there's, like, a lot of roads like this, but it does seem like a pain in the ass. So they back down the street, have a little regroup sesh. Basically, Charlie sent them to go over to Terry's house and kill whoever was there and make it witchy is basically right. the plan. Flower Child's freaking out. She's like, everyone's awake. People saw us. Everyone saw us. They're playing records because it sounded like Jay and Sharon were playing like Paul Revere and the Raiders, which they always do. And right. then I think Mom was in the Papas at one point. So she's like freaking out. And one of the girls is like, hey, you know what? That was Jake Cahill from Bounty Law. And it starts this whole thing where they realize <laughs> that they know who that was. It and was Rick like Dalton. this guy that was just like flipping out. Instead of, like, being mad anymore, they think it's, like, so cool that it was Jake Cahill. Well, then they're like, well, let's kill him. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so the girl in the back, Sadie, who is, like, a real name of someone that was there that night, Sexy Sadie, who they tried to say that the Beatles song was named after her. Oh, yeah. You know, okay. whatever. She helps come up with this idea, so they call an audible, and they're going to go to Rick Dalton's house instead and go there and kill some piggies, as they say. So they walk from their car up the street, and then Flower Child's like, hey, I forgot my knife. <laughs> and takes the keys and runs yeah. back to the car and then just drives that away. That would be me. <laughs> Pretty great idea based yeah. on what happens next. Yeah, I, well, I would be like, you know, I, this would be the moment where I'd be like, you know what, I don't think this cult life is for me. Yeah, like when you read the accounts of this stuff, and then like in Helter Skelter or whatever, you are like, Aren't any of these people like having that moment where like, hey, this might be not a great idea. Really? What are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> Let's not do this. Why are we doing this? 
I do think it's strange, though, that we don't see them pass Cliff again. Presumably, they must have passed him when they backed down the street. I agree. Because then he beats them back to the house by quite a bit, really. So he must have walked to some destination with Brandy, then made it back. I do think it's funny that Rick has like made his way out to the pool. <laughs> he's like hammered. Then he's making margaritas. Then he goes out into the street and is like yelling at these people in this car. And then he just is like, "I'm gonna get in my pool." Wasn't that like a typical drunk night? Yeah, just, well, like, it is. Who could right. even explain yeah. what just happened? <laughs> yeah. Well, they needed to get him out of the way. And then they have him plug those headphones into oh, that yeah. like, portable radio right. so that he won't know what the fuck's going on until it crashes down on him. Cliff tries to feed Brandy. He's blasting vanilla fudge on the stereo. And then oh, the yeah. acid hits. How great is the uh, soundtrack for this whole sequence? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he wakes up Francesca, who doesn't know what the fuck's going on. She's like jet lagged coming out of it. And just then the three attackers barge in, armed with knives and a gun, which Tex has. And they're kind of confused because they're expecting to find Jake Cahill from TV. And instead they have Cliff. And then when they go to the back bedroom, they pull out Francesca, who's also not Rick. And they're like, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, Rick's oblivious, floating in the pool with the headphones. And then they become even more freaked when Cliff recognizes them from Spawn Ranch. They're like, what the fuck is going on? Really? <laughs> and Cliff doesn't know if any of this is real because he's tripping balls at this point. Yeah, right. And he's like, what the fuck is going Thinking on? Thinking some and, of this stuff is silly. Yeah, and he's like, I guess if you were on acid, like, you would start freaking out because, like, why would these people that you recognize from Spawn <laughs> Ranch just suddenly be in this house? I do like when they first burst in and he's just like, can I help you? <laughs> <laughs> but what do you even say? Yeah. But it is subtle and great. Not that subtle. I don't want to act like it's subtle. But his little motions to brandy and just having brandy chill on the couch because brandy like wants to spring into action right, right, right away and he's just like kind of in control of the dog and he's trying to remember tex's name and tex is like i'm the devil and i'm here to do the devil's business which is something <laughs> yeah. supposedly that the real tex watson said at that night no it was way dumber than that <laughs> yeah and that's like the brilliance of the script it's weaving in the real stuff but also making fun of it yeah yeah and so this idea that like somehow this movie was gonna like glorify the manson murders or glorify manson or any of this shit it's like such the opposite oh i know it's like these people were assholes and the shit they said was dumb and let's goof on them yeah and then kill them violently people are here oh just the one sleeping in the back there go get him and bring him into the living room what if he says no don't take no for an answer you're the one with the knife get him in here hey you are real right i'm as real as a donut motherfucker What is going on, huh? Ah! 
Who the fuck's that? I don't know. Francesca. Oh. Uh, uh. Oh, I know you. I know all three of you. Yeah, Spawn Ranch. Spawn Ranch, yeah. Woo! I don't know your name, but I remember that hair. And you, I remember your white little face. And you were on a horsey. Yeah. Uh, you are... I'm the devil. And I'm here to do the devil's business. No, I was dumber than that. Something like Rex. Shoot him, Tex! Tex! He cocks the gun. Brandy gets the go-ahead. That's right. That's and like as soon as Brandy jumps off that couch and jumps on his and latches onto his arm, you're like, well, obviously. I know where this we is. We know headed. this where yep. this is headed. This is gonna get wild. Yeah. <laughs> And it is the most insane yeah. violence that I think Tarantino's ever even done. And he's done a lot of over-the-top violence, including carving a swastika into a man's forehead and, and the, the beating to death with the baseball bat. Yeah, there's just a, something about like how much you see in this movie yeah. and the fact that it's so insane. The girl that stabs him in the leg. that Oh, him, her fa- getting bashed oh, in a yeah. bunch of shit. It's nuts. That one is, is kind of hard to watch. The rest of it seems well. When you like, okay, first the dog lashes on to Tex, and then Sadie comes running over with a knife, and when he throws that can of dog oh, food yeah. right in her face, and like hits her right in the mouth, and like her teeth are broken, and there's like oh, blood yeah. everywhere. It's so strange because it's such a violent, horrific thing to see, and yet you could kind of feel like the tension in the audience. Everyone kind of exhales, like yeah. "fuck yes." Right. <laughs> we did not want to see. This pregnant woman get murdered Plus, at the end of this movie. I, and that's the thing. I think probably there is people would be like, oh, well, you're cheering for this horrific violence. Like, that's horrible. But there is still, like, a goofiness to this violence. Yeah. And ultimately, because we're supposed to have a working knowledge of the Manson murders right. to appreciate this. Yeah. We understand the villains that these are, are being the villains. defeated. Yeah. It's a little weird because it hasn't really quite happened yet. But they did barge in with the intent to kill here. I did think it was weird that there were younger people seeing this movie that didn't really know what the fuck was going on. That's odd. Yeah. That's hard to explain. But I I guess it makes sense. We're talking about something that happened 50 years ago, and you can be 17 and see an R-rated movie. So, I mean, I get it. Yeah, I know. But it's such a weird way to see this movie. You're like, what is the suspense then? They don't even know what they're waiting for. Right. (laughs) That is weird. It is odd to think about it uh, from that perspective because I knew about this stuff in high school, but it's like, I guess in, a, in another world, there's a good chance that I wouldn't have. Well, also, I just think things have changed a lot in the last 20 years. Yeah, well, I don't want to hear about that. <laughs> Cliff kills Tex and the redheaded girl, yeah. Katie. But yeah. then it Tex all. Tex has actually kind of gone uh, kind of quickly. It's a long sequence with Brandy, but then, I don't know, does he just kind of, like, curb stomp him outside? Well, yeah, he he goes with the knife, and then Cliff gets him to, like, miss, and then, like, hits his own knife into his own right. leg, and then knocks him down, and then just, yeah, does, like, the curb stomp type thing into his face. Yeah. Sort of like the elevator scene in Drive. Right. And yes. then 
yeah the dog then moves over to sadie and that's like a wild scene where the dog's like dragging her around until she fires the gun which gets the dog to run away and then the redhead is being just bashed in the face repeatedly just an absurd amount oh yeah i know i mean she's dead almost immediately and then there's just it just keeps a corpse going. being bashed right. into things well it does make you think about american history x or something because in that movie you know there's like a home invasion <laughs> and yeah. he kills the people that come into his home there's almost like this unnecessary roughness law like there's a self-defense <laughs> but come on this is a little bit over the top isn't it it all culminates in Sadie crashing through the window onto the patio, startling Rick, who doesn't know what the fuck's going on because he's got the headphones on, and he drops the thing into the pool, <laughs> the and he's fuck? like, what the fuck? And then she gets up, and she can't see because of like the blood or whatever in her face, and she's freaking out, firing the gun into the air, and she falls into the pool. Freaking out on some bummer trip. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, one of the most underrated. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. Really? Freaking out on some bummer trip. <laughs> just a way to summarize what just happened. Yeah. <laughs> like, imagine that happens, and that's like yeah, your way of explaining <laughs> that's it. The synopsis. <laughs> and this part, it's so great that they planted the seed earlier in the beginning oh, from the fourteen fifths of McCluskey, and this then like, like when the, like audience the audience realizes cheers, yeah. like what's happening, it's just like, oh my god. <laughs> So Rick hops out of the pool and runs over to the little shed next to the pool. And even at that point, I mean, it took me a minute, but I feel like other people in the theater were guessing it before me. Yeah. Because before he even pops out of there, I feel like some people were like, oh, no, like reacting. Here it comes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe these people saw it somehow before. I don't know. But it seemed like there was a little bit of that. And then it's like once he comes out of that shed with this fucking flamethrower, people were losing their minds. <laughs> Because how do you top all the insane oh, violence I know. that you I, just This saw? girl just completely torched. Yeah. And I believe it was DiCaprio really using the torch on a stunt double. Oh, and wow. And they like really did this as if it was real. And that, that little cutaway at the beginning of Rick Dalton complaining about the heat yeah. was taken from DiCaprio actually complaining about the heat. And they're being like, it's a flamethrower. Oh, wow. Yeah. Holy shit. I didn't realize no, that. That was recreated. Oh, okay, okay. It wasn't okay. the actual footage wow. of that. But yeah, that that's where that moment came <laughs> yeah, from was him funny. being like, is that's there something hilarious. we could do about the heat? Yeah. <laughs> that horizontal long shot of him like at the edge of the pool and her like at all the way to the other side. Right. And like spraying the flame across into the pool. It's like such a cool looking shot. Oh, I know. <laughs> You're like, this movie is insane now. It was so normal for two hours right. and then all of a sudden it's like, what is this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is like... It's cathartic. I agree. Especially for people who are fans of Sharon Tate. Either they were alive in the 60s or people who became fans later like us. You know, I almost hate to say this, but it was was such a horrible thing that happened. But remember when we watched Valley of the Dolls together? and (laughs) That was was... the horrible thing. (laughs) (laughs) What a nightmare. Yeah. We had, we're, we're drinking tea and eating crumpets, <laughs> watching Valley of Like the trying to like learn the lyrics to the songs. <laughs> this was pre Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by like a, a couple years. Oh, right. And we were like really admiring the women of the movie, especially As Sharon. we are wont to do. And I just like did a Google image search as I am wont to do of pretty much any actress in a movie. Yeah, yeah. You know how if you, like, click on one and then you just start scrolling, you don't see all of them. And then, like, as I'm scrolling, one comes up 
of her autopsy photo with like the stab wounds like Jesus. in her face and shit and it's like horrifying yeah yeah and those are just like out there anybody can see them they're online there's tons of places that have kind of shit like that and you're just kind of like yeah talking about a, a bummer yeah, trip really man. And i was like what the fuck yeah i don't really feel like looking at google image anymore i have no problem if hardcore pornography is going to be inserted into my image searches but i don't want to see that kind of bullshit no that's horrible <laughs> But yeah, this whole thing, it is over the top, but I guess my point is, when you feel that way, it is like a cathartic thing. It's like, you want it to be this violent. You want it to be as crazy as possible. Yeah. Because it feels great. (laughs) That's the thing about movies. It's fake. It's fantasy. And so you can like vicariously live through something this insane. And no one got hurt because it's a movie. That's right. And it's fine. It's all fake. (laughs) But the ending, which is so beautiful, and I, I did read things about people bursting into tears. Not, I, I did not burst <laughs> into tears. The flamethrower is so beautiful. No, no, the, the ending upcoming. Yeah, with Rick finally meeting Sharon and their little embrace and like, oh, the whole thing with Jay and everything. Like, <laughs> I love when she's like, "Do you want to come up for a drink?" And the camera pans over to Jay, and he's just got like his thumbs up. <laughs> Yeah, well, out of all the millions of controversies we forgot to touch on, Emile Hirsch being in this movie, another one, who choked a woman, <laughs> dragged oh, her across wow. a room, okay. and it was like a whole thing. Although I did see, like, recently, he must be friends with DiCaprio. I don't know if it was like they met on this movie or if they were friends before, but there was some beach picture of them, like, hanging out for DiCaprio's birthday recently, and DiCaprio was looking, like, almost as fat as me. Oh, wow. Like, Good for him. Really letting it go. Yeah. He's somebody who's, like, never that in, in that great a shape, which is yeah. always admirable to me. I like that, yeah. He's, like, the opposite of Brad Pitt, who's still, like, committed to being a god. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought I read that DiCaprio gained weight for this role, too. Oh, come on. Yeah. That's like Jonah Hill saying you gain weight for a role. It's like, all right, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but this whole thing, as beautiful as it is and as emotional as it can be, it is very bittersweet because I saw this movie before you because That's like right. an ass, you decided to not town. be in town yeah. during this release, which is maybe the top three dumbest things you've ever done, which is saying something because <laughs> we could have a whole podcast special really? about your bad decisions. Yeah. Although but it anyway, turns out like I don't even really remember that time period, so... You texted me. Mm-hmm. I did the fake out. You were like, how was it? And I gave you the fake out about like, oh, dude, it sucks or whatever. And yeah. you were like, really? <laughs> and I was like, um, no, it's awesome. Yeah. And then I was like, but I've been sad, though. But I didn't give you like why. And That's so right. you were starting to think that, oh, they that actually was, do do the murder. Yeah, I was like, wow. Okay. But my sadness. But I was still having such a hard time picturing how that plays out. My sadness was the bittersweet feeling at the end of this movie where you sort of wish that this was real. Right. And it would just be so much better because not only do I think that Tarantino created this to save Sharon Tate and Abigail Folger and Wojtek Frykowski and Jay Sebring and also not done in the movie, but the guest from the guest house, not the guy living in the guest house, but the guy who just got killed in the driveway. Right. Or Sharon's unborn baby. I think it was like, not only is this like a Valentine to a certain more innocent time, but it's the moment where everything changed and yeah. the ideas of the hippies died and peace and love changed and the whole scene sort of became different, which we talked about in Inherent Vice, but also the world itself was different, but you couldn't just like not lock your doors. And I think the idea of having Sharon pick up a hitchhiker is an important decision. Like it was just a different time. 
I was saying to you, the people staying at the guest house on this property like weren't famous. It was just oh, some yeah. random right. kid. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I'm staying on the same property as a movie star. It's like, like just a totally different world. world. Yeah. It was so innocent and different. And you could like interact with people in a different way. And people that were in movies weren't like gated off from the world the same way they are now. I mean, some of them probably were like an Elvis or something. But oh, not, yeah. But like. After this happened, everything changed. The 60s died and all of the ideals, and the 70s were their own, like, bummer trip. Yeah, really. As is mentioned in Dazed and Confused. Yep. <laughs> but you know what I mean? He's recreating this time period and changing events, not only for the people who directly were affected in that moment, but also how the world was changed. Yeah, For I the worse. Agree. Rick talks with Jay. Jay gives him that thumbs up. Yeah. He goes up to meet Sharon. It's sort of a, a metaphorical type ending. Like some people sort of taking a more cynical thing. Like, oh, now Rick gets to be like accepted into that world like he was saying. I mean, that's sort of a, a more crass sure. taking. Like, oh, we're just worried about Rick's career. I think it's more of just like an end of an era. And it's like this little fantasy, a fairy tale of what could have been. That's right. A what if. Once upon a time comes up on the screen. A beautiful dream. Yep. Yeah, they're using that. I, f- I forget what the, the piece of music is called, but it's this nice little piece from the life and times of Judge Roy Bean. Which- By the way, the first time you see the the title, they don't play it at the beginning of the movie at all. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. I think that's different than most of his movies. Yeah. He usually has kind of epic credit sequences or where the title's in it. Yeah, I think instead it just ha- it starts with Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, but they're like on the opposite people. Yeah, yeah. And then it 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 does through like the credits, and the the font is sort of similar to Pulp Fiction, which right. he's used that font before, but the color was more like Jackie Brown. It was yeah, like it's a like combo yellow. of the two. Yeah, yeah. It's an it's a fantastic ending to a great emotional movie. I love the movie. I'm baffled by people who say they like movies and don't like this movie. I just think it's insane. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I do. You don't really like movies then if you don't like this movie. I'm gatekeeping movies now. Yeah. Okay. Well, it needs to be done. <laughs> I do. I love the movie. I Like I said towards the beginning of the show, I mean, you know, I love Tarantino movies, but Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, and now this yeah, when we did I our rankings at the part. end of the Pulp Fiction Part 2 episode, we had both had this number three. Yeah. Our top threes were the same. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty boring list well, in yeah. retrospect. But to me, those are the three that I would watch yeah, at any I time. Connect the, I connect with this in a way, in a more emotional way than I do with the other films that I love. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that I love at least six of his movies. And like all, I like all of them, but... Yeah. I love Kill Bill as one movie, by the way, not fuck the part one and part two. And I okay. love Inglorious Bastards, and I love Reservoir Dogs, but I don't connect with them emotionally like this oh, yeah. and the ones in the top three. And even, like, I probably connect more emotionally with this and Jackie Brown than I do Pulp Fiction, but Same. Pulp Fiction is, like, so awesome. It's, it's just undeniable. A, such a great movie, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't really deny. Did you, have you seen that Capital One commercial? Yes. With Samuel Jackson and, and John, John Travolta's Travolta. Santa Claus. Yeah. That's kind of fun. <laughs> right. I don't know what That's else to That's my recommendation say. for this week, that commercial. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene.
Do you have one? I do. I well, I I came prepared with one. Okay, go ahead. Let's do recommendations right now. Okay, so from one great director of our era to another, I think streaming on Cinemax, which is kind of <laughs> weird. Okay. <laughs> Although it's been streaming on other things at different times. It was on Prime for a while. I watched the Criterion Blu-ray, Paul Thomas Anderson, Punch Drunk Love. Yeah. Another emotionally distraught <laughs> character. Yeah, there's probably. a character that... I think really hits home for you. Yeah, uh, it was <laughs> bringing me in that movie. back to like certain times in my life. It does make me think how much better I've gotten. I think the podcast has really helped, you know, pull me <laughs> out of it and out of my weirdness. Where this I was podcast just like, is our therapy. That's right. But it's just such a great movie. Cinematography off the charts. But just this introvert and this thing that happens to him that changes his life and the way he reacts to things. But also just like insane performances. The part. There's a part where him and Philip Seymour Hoffman are just, like, screaming at each other. Yeah. And it's fucking great. Have you ever seen that commercial, that, like, fake commercial that they filmed with Philip Seymour Hoffman where he's, like, playing guitar up on the roof? And there's, like, mattresses on a truck, and he falls off onto the mattresses, but then he falls off the truck onto the ground, okay, just slams no. down on his guitar, like, on the ground. <laughs> he's like, fuck, and he, like, stands up and walks away. I have not seen that, no. It's like, I think it's on the bonus features. You can, like, okay. see it on, like, YouTube or something. I don't know. I've seen that video. It's pretty great. But All he's right. that character from that movie. Yeah, I think after the back-to-back of Boogie Nights and magnolia people yeah. were like what is this, this i know is so not what they would think it's so short I, 90 minutes yeah and it's like such a character study versus like these long sprawling things that were like the previous two movies i agree but it, it is weird but it's it's ultimately like cool. one of his underrated movies and i i think people sort and of it like feels don't like, know how to process it because it's sandler and but. it's so nuts and the performances are nuts just like a lot of paul thomas anderson movies but it does feel weirdly personal because it seems like so specifically about these sort of borderline disorders that the Sandler character has. Yeah. Yeah. I, I watched it over quarantine when I watched like all of those Criterions. It was yeah. one of the ones I watched. I had not watched it in a long time. It was having me longing for like, I, I hope, I don't know if they, they'll be able to at any point, but if Criterion can do like other releases of his movies. Well, there's always the rumor of hard eight. Yeah. But who knows? It seems like they need his cooperation and he's always busy. He right. just wrapped filming on his new movie with oh, good. Like Bradley Cooper and the chick from Heim, one of them. Okay. And I forget who else is oh, one of the Safty brothers is in it. Oh wow. I think the one that like acts more and then I don't know who else is in it. But it's like right. it takes place in the seventies. It's got a cool Always uh, excited for anything he does, so yeah, have it. My recommendation, of course, Saved by the Bell, the (laughs) new Saved by the Bell on Peacock. Who had that one? Just started streaming. We've done three episodes of this podcast related to Saved by the Bell already. Some more forgettable than others. I don't want to do like a whole big thing about it. Matt, for some reason, hasn't even watched any episodes yet. Although I I might stick around after this recording. That you haven't watched it yet. But yes, they brought back Zach Kelly Slater and Jesse. Zach and Kelly aren't in it a super ton. Jesse and Slater are in it more, but the focus is new kids. It is like a very modern take on it, but it's very self-referential and self-aware. And there's a lot of in-jokes for people who watch the original show. And it's almost like 
asking the question of like, well, what if we continued Say by the Bell in a real universe, but acted like all of that crazy shit from the original show right. was somehow real? Like, how would that work? I'm in. And it, yeah, it's just sort of a weird way to do it. But I found myself laughing. I watched all 10 episodes in like two days. Yeah. And I enjoyed it. I was saying to you before we started recording, I don't know if it's the type of show that will get picked up and will continue on. I have no idea. I would like it to, but, you know, this has been the year of things getting canceled between High Fidelity and Glow and Castle Rock and everything. Going for it. It doesn't seem like it's that hard to make. Well, they already invested the time in, like, recreating Bayside. Like, why would you want to stop now? (laughs) Good point. Just to do one season. Anyway, check that out on Peacock. All right, thanks for listening. Follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podbean. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Positive. <laughs> Positives only, yeah. or get out. <laughs> or if you're going to give us a negative review, at least write the review and not just the rating yeah. so that we can laugh So that at we it. know what we said that upset you. <laughs> what specifically? Anyway, it's going to be a busy December, so strap in there. The episodes will be coming fast and furious talk to you real soon. You don't know what's going on. You've been away for much too long. You can't come back. I think you are still mad. You're out of touch, my baby. Not for fashion, baby. I say, baby, 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 you're out of touch. 
what just blew through the screen. <gasps> oh. oh, man. His top just makes me crazy. Phew. Look at him sitting on that stool like he's doing it a favor. <laughs> well, you know what? He can just sit there forever as far as I'm concerned. I just don't care. However, my job description requires me to go down and find out exactly what he wants. <clears throat> can I help you? Do you have coffee? Is that a cup? You think you can fill it? Think you can handle it? I can handle a menu. First look is free. I never paid for looking yet. You better watch it, cowboy. I've been watching it since you walked over here. Yeah, I couldn't help. Couldn't help notice what you were looking at, too. I'm not looking at anything that ain't showing. You better keep your eyes on what you're watching instead of what you think is what's showing. Because we got rules here, Mr. Rules! <laughs> I'm going to be right back. I'll be here. OK. All right. Good, then. Fine. OK. What did he want? What do you think? Well, what did you say? What could I say? Hey, excuse me, Brenda. Uh -huh. Can we get a cup of coffee? Oh, sure. <clears throat> Unless, unless, unless you don't want us to have any more. Oh, you boys. You are just the sweetest things. I mean it. You really are. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Ready to tell me what you want? I made that decision when I was 12. Ready to tell me what you like? I'm ready. You look it. You got some specials that look real fine. Yeah, I'm pretty proud of them. Are they as good as they look? I ain't had no complaints. I'll take the wagon, master. But I like my eggs on top of my toast. I just bet you do. Ornery! You are skating on thin ice. I don't know what you're talking about. You are driving on bald tires. Well, I would love to carry on this interesting conversation, but if you'll excuse me, I have muffins to stack. Gosh, Brenda, you sure do stack them muffins real good. What? <laughs> Thank you, Roy. It's an acquired skill, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, you do it real good. Oh. <laughs> now, why don't you tell me what kind of pie you want with your breakfast special? I didn't order pie. It comes with a special. It's not on the menu. What are you trying to say? What are you trying to do? Are you saying that I'm the kind of waitress that would offer you a slice of pie that wasn't on the menu? All I'm saying is pie is never free. <laughs> you want to know what I think? I think you can take that order right out the door, because appetites like yours, <laughs> they're a dime a dozen. Then I guess I'll be going. I guess you will. You know something, honey? Shouldn't give away your pie with breakfast. It makes you look cheap. You get out! Get out! Now, 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 don't you cry, honey. He ain't worth it. Brenda? Out. Eat his pie. Me too. 
are the sweetest things. There's an old piano and they play it hot behind the green door. Don't know what they're doing, but they laugh a lot behind the green door. Wish they'd let me in so I can 